Welcome to He's a Giant, a pod about all things Giants football and all things college football. I'm Sal, here with my host, Monty. What is going on, man? What's going on, Sal? We're back. The you know hopes for the top two pick are kind of over, but you know we we're here now to give you all the other scenarios for the for the rest of this draft season. The fun stuff. Before we get started, we want to yeah. thank you guys for all your support, as always. Thanks for all the support we've been getting the last few episodes. We cannot imagine how far this thing has gone in terms of views. So we really appreciate all of you guys. Um, and for those who are new, uh, please follow us. I'm Sal at Queens underscore guy on Twitter. Monty is at Montecristo at M-O-N-T-E-C-R-I-5-T-O. Or you can follow us at He's a Giant Pod. Just getting, and we're on all the major platforms, YouTube, Spotify, Apple. Uh, so you guys know what to do. If you like, if you like the show, like us, subscribe to us the whole bit. Um, all that stuff aside, let's get into things. So we're at the bye week. The Giants are four and eight. Uh, better than where we were two weeks ago at two and eight as a record. Better, I guess. Um, arguably. <laughs> arguably. Um, so today's episode, we want to do something different. It's our bye week episode. We're, we're, we're basically going to call this one our state of the Giants episode. We, uh, you know, before we get into some other things, going into the, the rest of the season, as we finished off our reviews of prospects and went through our position groups, um, we want to now get into a little bit about putting it all together and seeing if we can come up with a way to discuss the future of the team. And that starts with assessing where we are. So we're going to go over some stuff today, including some recent news. Uh, and then we're going to get into a breakdown of what we think the state of the Giants is kind of in a detailed way, position by position, coach by coach, and hopefully it will illuminate certain issues uh, that we think are important to the Giants going forward. So why don't we get right into it, man? This week, uh, the se- so the Giants win on Sunday against the Patriots. That's all your fault because you went to the game. You and Bobby, <laughs> you and Bobby Skinner. Out. Yeah, you, your <laughs> job was to keep Bobby out of the building and you couldn't do it. I don't blame you. He's bigger than you, but you still <laughs> failed. Uh, I, I and- <laughs> told him it was my job. He didn't listen. Did you tell him? I told, I told him Sal. Yeah. Sal told me to keep, keep you out. Did he even respond to you? Yeah, he just laughed. He laughed <laughs> walked, walked right in. Yeah, walked ta- in. All right, bye, Bobby. You should have blocked him. He's how big could he be? Right? He's what is he like six eight? <laughs> That's all. Yeah. Um, so, Giants win a ten seven game on a missed field goal at the end against Patriots. That was a brutal game. Um, I admittedly was not watching it live. I was out doing other stuff. I came back and I watched it later. I was like, oh, this is ugly. I can't believe you guys sat through this. Yeah, in but, the rain. Yeah. Long story short, with that loss, our chances of getting a top two pick on uh, this draft fell to under 10% when all was said and done with the weekend. <clears throat> I think we're sitting around 8% now. Um, so it's highly improbable for the Giants to land a top two pick and have a guaranteed access point to one of the top two quarterbacks. So we're going to have to shift in how we view the offseason a little bit. Um, there's still a lot of games to be played, but that's probably unlikely. Um, yep. But the big news that came out that day uh, while you guys were in the stadium right before the game was the Jay Glazer report on the strained, broken relationship between Wink Martindale and Brian Dable. Um, for those who are not familiar with it yet, I'm sure you are by now, but... The report from Jay Glazer, who, for you know anybody who knows, is the best in the business. When he tells you something, you believe it. 
He's, that you listen, especially about the Giants. Yeah, he's sourced up, and he doesn't just release reports for nothing. He's telling you something very, very real. And what Jay Glazer said essentially was that the relationship was so strained from between Martindale and Dable that there was a possibility that Wink Martindale would not only not be with the Giants after this season, but possibility that he would be let go or leave the team in the next in the coming weeks, presumably meaning during the bye. Now that so far has not happened, but um, let's hear your thoughts on this one, Monty. It's not good, man. It's not good. Like you said, when it's Jay Glazer, you listen. So I have no doubt that there is a lot of truth to this report. Um, how mendable that relationship is, I guess, is still the question. I mean, it sounds pretty bad based off of what Jay Glazer is reporting. Um, I guess it's going to come down to, you know, the willingness of Brian Dable and Wink Martindale to try to mend this relationship that's clearly having issues and if they'll be able to manage to do it in general. But man, it's not a it's not a good look. It's a it's a bad look for, I mean really both Brian Dable and Wink Martindale. I mean both coaches who have had I mean, you talk about Wink Martindale who from you know their reported philosophical differences that led to him leaving the Ravens and you talk about Brian Dable who, you know, there is clearly, and you saw it when we played the bills, there was clearly issues between him and Sean McDermott. Both these guys have had some histories of, you know, of some shape or form, not getting along with the other coach on the roster. And for this to pop up for both of them, especially Brian Dable, who's the head coach and is supposed to be managing these relationships. It's not a good look. Yeah, it's bad. I think the fact that it came out from Glazer, you know, I think a lot of people are, threw out a lot of ideas like, well, maybe this is somebody, you know, um, our friend Big Dash, I think, threw out the idea on Twitter, like maybe this is smoke, maybe they're, somebody's trying to weed out a, you know, a rat from the building and um, I don't buy that. I don't, th- I think Jay Glazer would kind of know if this was some BS. I don't think people would purposely do that to Jay Glazer personally. Um I, and it's not the first time we're hearing of it either. I think if this was the only time we ever heard of this, it's one thing. Um, even though with Jay Glazer, you believe it. We heard Dan Duggan hint about this for a few weeks now, about the straining relationship. I heard Talking Giants this morning, interviewing uh, Jordan Raynon, kind of confirming that, yeah, it's pretty bad between them. It's kind of known. He didn't really know how bad it was, but I think it was kind of known that these guys butt heads. I think you take it at face value, that there's a problem. Um, the way I look at it is a guy like Jay Glazer is probably getting his, I'm guessing this, but I'm guessing his source is somebody from the agency side of things. And it's probably Wink's camp is my guess. And if assume not Dable, who's trying to cover up this stuff. I don't know. I don't think so. I doubt it. Yeah. Um, so let's just run with that idea, which I think is the most logical source is somewhere from Wink's camp. This is coming saying that he thinks that he's going to be let go in the next couple of weeks, potentially, certainly by the end of the year, that they may have to like pivot. Ask yourself, why would they release the information? It's kind of the same reason the Tony Pauline story from Kafka's camp came out. I think they're getting ahead of this and saying there's a problem in the building. It's not us. And in case we hit the market, you know, by the way, we're available. And um, yeah. so this is I, I as troubling as that is as a Giants fan. It just it sure sounds like Wink, Mar- Wink Martindale is putting his resume out there in the public and saying I'm going to be out there. So before you hire anybody internally, keep in mind that I may hit the market soon. That that's what it that's what it reads like to me. 
Um, and unfortunately, it's hard to see a relationship like that get mended, especially now that it's out in the public. Because if it did come from Wings Camp, you know that Dable and them are talking to Wink and saying, how the hell did this get out? And he's probably going to say to them, like, yeah, it got out, you know, and, and it, is, it, is it not real? And at that point, it seems like it's an irreconcilable difference. You know, I feel like this story doesn't come out in an attempt to mend a relationship. And this kind of story comes out in an attempt to notify the public of a broken relationship that cannot be fixed. That's my take on it. So, Yeah, man, it sucks. It really does suck from so many levels. I mean, from kind of the main levels talked to the first place, just like not a good look for Brian Dable in the sense of especially, you know, you've seen this with like New England Patriot three coaches before and them struggling to work with other coaches. You know, Brian Dable did something different to a lot of those New England coaches and brought in a bunch of coaches from outside of his tree. It was something we were all we all gave him a ton of credit for and brought in some coaches. He um, were really talented and had a lot of success with, but if you're going to struggle from a relationship standpoint, that's not good. It's not a good look. Um, you know, that's the first side of it. And then the other side of it is just that Wink Martindale is a really fucking good football coach. And, you know, our defense really seemed like it was starting to come together where we could see that we, with maybe a couple pieces, we could be a legit defense. And, you know, we could still do that with another coordinator and all that. But, you know, Wink Martindale runs a very kind of specific defense. And I don't think that is a change that's going to work well overnight. I mean, I think we could get there. And I think we have pieces that aren't necessarily just stuck in Wink Martindale's scheme. But, um, I think that's a big switch, whatever we're going to do more than likely. Yeah, it, it sucks, man. I, I think uh, if you really want to be fair, I've been pretty critical of Dable on this particular issue, even though we've defended him and the coaching staff in general in the past. This team is a really, really bad football team. It's a historically bad offense. Wink Martindale and his defense are the one thing keeping this season afloat. And 4-8 and is hardly afloat, but they'd probably be a 1-11 you know, team without Wink Martindale's defense right now. I think that's fair to say. And yeah. if it wasn't for Wink Martindale, we definitely don't win the last two games. Uh, all the young players that are developing seemingly favor the development on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, he's doing more with less. These guys are balling out. They're coming into their, their own. Guys like Kayvon, Dex... Um, Michael McFadden, Bobby O'Carrigy comes here. He looks a lot better than he ever looked in Indianapolis. Um, guys like Jason Pinnock, now Xavier McKinney's coming back. Obviously, Deontay Banks' development, Cordell Flott. Like, these guys are coming in and looking like a good football team. They're looking like good football players. It's hard to ignore that Wink Barndale is the leader of that side of the ball. And you look yeah. on the offense, Daniel Jones was horrible before he got hurt. The quarterback play has largely been really bad. Yeah, Tommy DeVito has had some moments, but you know, and I'm not going to blame Tommy DeVito. He's a UDFA rookie. I think he's done a, a fairly good job with what he's been handed, uh, given the circumstances. Um, so I, that's a not, you know, you can't really judge that. But J Daniel Jones is the one you can judge, and he did very poorly uh, before he got hurt. The offensive line has been atrocious. It every single player Nobody's has regressed. Developed. Nobody's yep. developed on the offensive line. Uh, the use of our receivers and our tight ends has been non-existent now i personally think that's more quarterback play than anything i think our coordinator is getting them open um but 
all in all, as a product, the offense has not looked good. Guys haven't developed fully. The defense has. And here we are in a bad season. And what are we doing? We're hearing stories about the one guy who's keeping it together getting pushed out the door. That is yep. a bad look. And it makes you wonder where this is going. Because if Wink Bardale does leave, and we're going to get into this in just a few minutes, where does that leave Joe Shane? Where does that leave Brian Dable and the Giants for the future? Because you got to worry whether or not they go get a quarterback at this point. Like, what is the state of the Giants next year if we lose a key coach? So I want to get into that in a little more detail. We will in this episode. Before we do, there are a couple of things I do want to discuss um, that we just have to talk about the state of the team before we jump into these like position-by-position, coach-by-coach scenarios. Um, we're hearing a lot of... You know, we're hearing a lot of talk about our playoff odds from people like, hey, we won two games. So I wanted, I don't want to throw cold water on everybody, but I want to have a little dose of reality here uh, in terms of what it means it to be four and eight for the Giants. Because I've seen reports like, hey, the Giants are only two losses or two wins behind the playoff spot. Well, that's contingent on a lot of things breaking their way. So that for those who don't know, the New York Times, we've mentioned this before, they have a website. That's part of their their uh, their paper. It's called the Upshot. It's a st- statistical analysis component of their website. They have a playoff odd calculator, playoff odds per team, and we ran the simulations just before we started. So I'm going to run it through, run through it with you guys to just just so you understand where the Giants sit in terms of probability of making the playoffs. So as of today, the New York Giants have a less than one percent chance of making the playoffs. Less than one percent. If they win the game against the Packers, they will have a 1% chance of making the playoffs. If they then also win the game after that against the New Orleans Saints, they have a 4% chance of making the playoffs. If they take that momentum and then go against the Philadelphia Eagles in week 16 and beat the Eagles at full strength, they have a 19% chance of making the playoffs. And then if they go against the Rams and they beat them after winning the last six games consecutively, meaning they go on a seven-game winning streak, then they cross into the plus 50% territory with a 55% chance of making the playoffs. And if they run the table and beat the Eagles again, they have a 91% chance of making the playoffs. So just think about this for a second. The Giants have to win the seven consecutive football games, including the two they just won, seven consecutive games to get into the plus 50% category to be a favorite to make the playoffs. They don't even control their own destiny. <laughs> right. It's not, if 55% still means coin flip, right? Yeah. You get to that point, it's still a coin flip. Uh, they so, win out, it's still 91. <laughs> right. So the, right. The Giants basically have to win out to make the playoffs. That's what it's telling you. So, you know, things things can happen, but those are the numbers. Last bit of news before we jump into our position stuff. Uh, the Brian Dable, Joe Shane Presser, which happened the day after the Wink Martindale news broke. So we're going yep. in chronological sequence here, right? We're talking about a shitty outcome to the game. Let's not sugarcoat it. <laughs> that sucked. We won, but it sucked that we knocked out ourselves out of the top two spots. Uh, we talked about the Wink Martindale news. We're talking about what that means for playoffs. Next day, Joe Shane gets up on stage at the press conference and right after Brian Dable, and they both give very interesting press conference answers to questions. Um, Brian Dable answers the Wink Mardell questions uh, with things like, we argue over who gets the last slice of pizza. 
we just share donuts together. He makes these like just fat jokes, just just stupid fat jokes uh, <laughs> uh, to every question about it. Like that's that's his go to, I guess. Now just make fat like I'm fat. Ha ha. Look at me. Yes, we know you are not a thin man, but that does not answer the question. Um, twice during that interview, he was asked direct questions. Will Wink Bardell finish out the season as your defensive coordinator? Can you commit to that? And twice he refused to answer the question. And, and that was that. Joe Shane gets up there and pretends he never heard the Jake Laser report, which is a great look for a general manager. Yeah, what, what report? I don't know what report. Um, let's touch on that first and then get into the Daniel Jones stuff after that. So yeah. what, what, just, just give me your, your two cents on those guys and their responses. Sure. So, I mean, they obviously were doing their best to try to just avoid answering at any cost. I thought the one line that I thought was really interesting to me was from Joe Shane. And basically, when they asked about if if uh, Brian Dable and Wink Martindale's relationship has changed at any sense, he basically says, it's been the same relationship it's been for the last 22 months. He never really said like it that it wasn't fractured. He just said been the same for the last twenty two months. And right. I thought that was interesting because there was another report by Dan Duggan and he was just kind of talking about it's like, hey, this isn't new. Like they there is they they just have clashing personalities. Like this was something in the summer. Like it's gotten worse from my understanding, but They've always kind of had clashing personalities, clashing styles of coaching. They're just like very similar and different people all in the same sense that really just kind of like clash each other. So I don't know. That kind of leads me to believe this has always been somewhat of an issue. It's just, you know, losing brings out the worst. That's kind of like how I started thinking about it when I thought about his answer a little bit more and more. Yeah, that's how I looked at it. Like, they've had a bad relationship from the get-go. Um, they're both strong-willed, strong-tempered individuals, and it's not surprising that they would clash. Um, I think what's surprising is that it would lead to a point where Brian Dable is basically sending out the signal that I don't really want this guy back, um, and I may want him gone sooner than later, and that Wink Barndale feels if we think that's what happened to he thinks that it's important through his camp to leak that news out and get it to Jay Glazer. Those are warning signs of a really dysfunctional relationship. Um, after the Giants win, after the report's out, Brian Dable hands the game ball to Wink Mardale. Um, I swear to God, I was watching Wink and he was laughing, but he, you could almost tell in his face he wanted just, he just wanted to just walk out maybe punch Dable in the face, you know, it, 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 it looks so uncomfortable, um, you know? And, and so I think, unfortunately, this is, this to me looks just, everything is reading like a frayed relationship. I don't think Josh, I don't think Joe Shane's handling this well. There's a lot of things I don't agree with how he's handling. Um, I feel like you have to not, you don't have to like get up there and pretend that your fan base and the people paying attention to you are brain dead. You have to give them a little bit more respect than that. And not say things like, what report, what report? I never. I, I think it would have been important and it would have been helpful for him to be somewhat honest. I'm not saying he has to give away all the information, but just say, yeah, I heard the report. Yes, I've seen it. We are aware of it. And right now we're just focused on winning football games. And, and that's all you got to say. 
you know, and, and yeah. that's it. Like we're focused on, we're all, we all the same vision of winning football, games, building a winner. And that's that, you know, I can't comment on anything more than that. Just, just say that to the, I don't know. The, the, I think he could use some media training. Let's put it that way. I feel like he's not doing the best job up there. Um, but Joe Shane said other things too, Monty. He got into the Daniel Jones stuff and, and he was less, abstract in his answers to questions about the future of the Giants with respect to the quarterback acquisition. Uh, when asked about, you know, Daniel Jones and the future of the team, his answer was, our expectation is that when he's healthy, he's our starting quarterback. Um, mm-hmm. When asked to explain why Daniel Jones struggled this year, earlier in the year, he said, well, it's not just about the quarterback. There's 11 guys out there. And things just kind of, I think he said something along the lines of things got out of control. When asked, do you still have faith in Daniel Jones uh, as your quarterback and why you have faith in him? He said, well, I, I saw it and you guys saw it. He won 10 games last year. He won a road playoff game. So something I noticed was he attributed a lot of positive achievements to solely Daniel Jones, honestly when he was in that in that interview and when asked about his shortcomings this year he made it about the team um that was my takeaway from that but i want to hear your thoughts on his responses specifically regarding daniel jones and then the quarterback position in general sure so i thought that you know obviously there's everything you said was correct he did say all those things but i very much felt like he gave a lot of answers that were you could take what he was saying kind of any way you wanted in some senses. Like, I mean, he went out and said, you know, they asked him about taking a first round quarterback and he could have shied away from that and said like Daniel Jones is our quarterback or whatever it may be. And he didn't, didn't back off of taking a first round quarterback. He consistently brought up Daniel Jones injuries and kept mentioning how they still need to address the quarterback position and how they everybody recovers differently. And we don't know how Daniel Jones is going to recover from this injury to me. So this the way I partially look at this, it's. It's tough because you, it's not like you can just like rule out Daniel Jones because he's going to be on your roster next year, whether Absolutely. you're go, going going to draft a quarterback or not, he's going to be on your roster. And I, I mean, I think saying like, he's going to be your starter is probably correct because like, like that's going to be the plan until a, if, even if you draft rookie quarterback till the rookie quarterback proves that he's ready to play. So going in with the plan that Daniel Jones is a starter so to me, if we lost that game to the Patriots, for example, I just don't think his answers were going to, would be any different than they were. So I don't think it necessarily points to anything for the future. Now, something me and you kind of discussed a little bit with this. And I think there's a lot of people that think that like there was a gun held to Joe Shane's head by John Mara to re-sign Daniel Jones. And I think it's pretty clear. I mean, obviously I think John Mara loving Daniel Jones played an influence in, in him being resigned a hundred percent. But I think it's also pretty clear that Joe Shane likes Daniel Jones and there, and he brought him back for a reason. 
And I think now he's trying to defend the reasons why he brought him back as it's blowing up in his face. Yeah. I I don't buy the conspiracy theories about like, you know, I I fully believe the Albert Breer article in which Daniel Jones very uh, kind of methodically calls John Mara at the 11th hour of the negotiations to say, oh, no hard feelings, you know, if this doesn't get done. Um, if I was Daniel Jones and I had that kind of ac- access to the owner, I would do the exact same thing because I'd want the owner on my side. Uh, but I don't think that necessarily means that the owner ran to Joe Shane and was like, you better sign this deal. I think it's more along the lines of, I really am in support of you signing a deal. And if it means meeting him at his price point, I'm okay with that. I feel it's more along those lines. Like I'm going to give you the, you can do it if you want to, um, which is, you know, in a tacit way, sort of kind of saying, I want you to do it. But at the end of the day, you're the general manager of the team. You're the one responsible for the financial health and the roster health of this organization. And if you feel very strongly that that's bad for the team, you turn around to your owner and say, I appreciate that, but I don't think it's in the best interest of the Giants. I think our best our best uh, approach here is is slap the tag on him and we'll figure out the rest. And you got to trust me to build a roster. And the what I've said about this is, quite frankly, what's the worst thing that could have happened if Daniel Jones got tagged and then he had it? People said, well, what if he gets more expensive? Well, that means he played really well. Yeah. If you hit him with a tag and he played great, that means you're winning again. You have your second straight consecutive year of winning football. You think you're going to get fired at that point? You think you're in bad graces with the owner? No, you're in great graces. And you say, guess what? We put him through the test again. He passed the flying colors. This is our guy. Give him the contract. Who cares? Right? Then nobody, nobody would doubt it. If he does poorly on the tag, you turn to the owner and say, it's a good thing we tagged him. <laughs> you know, it's a good thing yeah. we tagged him. Now we're done with it. I, I always felt this was a Joe Shane decision to give Daniel Jones the contract he gave him. Um, and circling back to our discussion about what he's saying in the commentary at the press conference, I think Joe Shane is fully aware that he screwed up, that he made a bad decision with Daniel Jones um, in paying him the deal he did. And I think that you can interpret that one of two ways. He's either being quip with his answers and he has every intention of moving on and you know, riding the ship. Or he's like many people who make a bad investment and a bad deal and they want to prove themselves right and they stay stubborn. And I don't think we have an answer to that yet. I don't think it's clear where he stands. I will say this, though. In the past, Joe Shane has said several things at press conferences that people say, oh, I'm going to interpret it this way or that way. By and large, he's basically followed through and done what he said he would do at press conference. Like He's not somebody who's got a history as a Giants GM of going up there and lying to the public and telling them he's going to do one thing and then he does the opposite. In general, if he's saying I intend for Daniel Jones to be my starting quarterback and I have to replace Tyrod Taylor, I do think he's going into it with that in mind. Now, that doesn't mean he won't take a first-round quarterback. I don't think the two necessarily equate. But I think it gives you a little in- – I do think it gives you some insight into how they're thinking. I don't think they've given up on Daniel Jones at all. And yeah, I think I mean, that they may take a developmental quarterback, but I'm not so sure they're giving up on Jones as their starter. Like I said, I think that it's pretty cl- I think you're right. He's, he's not lying because he's paid. He's going to be on this roster next year. And I think the plan is that they're going into it with the thought he's going to be the starter. They're not going in. Let's this. They're not going into this draft with the idea that if they don't get 
a quarterback. Like there's nothing like Tommy DeVito is the only thing on the roster. I think they are under the impression that they are like the quarterback. It could still be a need for them, but like, it's not like Daniel Jones does. Isn't there. I don't know. It's it, it. There's a lot of things where I don't know how much they believe in Daniel Jones. I think that it's a twofold thing though. I don't know you saw a bad play by Daniel Jones but you also saw injuries by Daniel Jones. So maybe they still believe in the play, which I mean, I, I don't think that is the smartest view. I don't, I don't know if not, but I think two major injuries definitely has you rethinking that investment regardless. And, you know, something I mentioned um, a lot going into this year is that this year was a big test for Daniel Jones, because I thought going into this off season coming up, if they did not restructure Daniel Jones money and let him play in that huge contract. I thought it was very telling what their plan was to do with the next off season. I didn't think we'd be planning to move on from Daniel Jones so much this off season, but I thought you would have got a clue of wh- where he stood with the organization by if they touched his money or not. And I think yeah. it's pretty clear. They're not touching that money. No, no, they're not. Um, We'll find out. I mean, but I do think the clue, the, you know, the last thing I want to say on that as we move on in this discussion of the state of the Giants is the clues I took from that not ne- were not necessarily that he will or won't take a quarterback in the first round, but I think that assuming we're locked out of the top two picks and assuming we can't get up to the top two picks somehow, I do think that that gives you insight into the type of quarterback they might want to take. Because if they're, in my mind, if they're saying that he's still our quarterback, at least for next year, um, they may be thinking, well, if we draft a younger quarterback or a guy with more upside and park him behind Jones, we can have a very clear path to say we're developing a young quarterback while we let Jones play out. And that's our plan. It's a dangerous plan, in my opinion. But it may give you insight into how they're going to approach things. It's not necessarily the wrong plan, but it may be dangerous for their job security, for at least for Dables. Um, yeah. It depends on I, what yeah. level of developmental quarterback they get. If they go right. get, like, you know, going back to our quarterback episodes, I mean, I think he's going to stay in school. But you go out and get Cam Ward, that guy's not going to be ready by any means this year. But if you but go if out you, and get a J.J. McCarthy. Very different. Very different, right? Uh, and it also tells me that I think that are you really drafting J- Jaden Daniels over Jaden uh, JJ McCarthy. Maybe if you like him, but there is a difference. I mean, there's about a three year difference in age. Um, one guy looks like he is hitting his his college peak, so to speak, in terms of development and production. The other guy is ascending and is not close to that yet, or at least I don't think he's close to it. Um, same thing with Shadur Sanders. If he declares, he's young, he's ascending. But Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix. These are complete products, um, you know. Are they really going to bring in a guy who's a complete product right away, just to sit a year behind Jones? I, I still am. I'm not so sure they're going to do that. I think if they're going to go get a, I think obviously if they have access to the top two guys, that's different. That's a different tier. That's a no brainer. But if you don't have access to the top two, I do think that there is reason to believe that they would aim more for the younger guy, the developmental guy who is high upside, and try to make the case to ownership that look, we're Daniels Jones is still here. He's going to get another crack at it to see if he can hold on to his job and see if he can build up some value for himself one way or another. In the meantime, we're developing this kid behind him. Um, and 
chances are the kid's taking over in the future and, and we'll develop them. And that's that. I think that would be a palatable solution to ownership and all involved. I'm yeah. beginning to think that's where this might be headed, you know, and we'll get into that more as, uh, as we approach yeah. draft season. And yeah. And when we get to the quarterback <laughs> part of our, uh, our state of the giants as well. Um, I, you know, anything else kind of interest you from that though? There, there was one, one thing that interested me is they asked him about, uh, they asked Joe Shane about Evan Neal and about oh, yeah. how, how he felt about him. And, um, you know, that was interesting to me where he, it wasn't like a strong commitment, but he was, he was very much kind of like, Hey, do you see this guy moving to guard? And he was just like, I don't think so. Like I, like I went back and I looked at him at like our, I looked at the Alabama tape again. I looked at what we saw. I looked at what we've seen so far. And I think he, he knows he needs to get better. We know he needs to get better, but we think he's a tackle. Um, Part of me what is, thinks that that he's that he knows that the coaching hasn't been yeah. good enough for him. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that that was basically a bad signal. Like we didn't develop this guy properly. That we couldn't yeah. keep him a tackle. I, he's a tackle, and he's. I think he's. And also, he's the one who made the pick, right? He's not going to come here a year, a year and a half after the pick, and say, "Oh, I, I fucked up. He's a guard." You know, uh, yeah. I took a guard at the seventh overall pick. He's going to say, "He's, he's going to say, no, I picked a tackle. That guy's a damn good tackle. I picked him." he's got to play better. So he's basically putting it on the coaches and he's putting on Evan Neal. Like you're not developing and you guys are not developing him. I think he's actually criticizing both the coaching and the player. Um, I don't know how much he attributes to the player versus the coaching, but I think he's basically saying you should be an NFL tackle and you guys both have to figure this out. Now what that means we'll get to again. Um, but I think it has implications on the coaching staff. It, it's funny because I felt like so many of his answers were very just lawyer type responses, but that was, there's a couple times that was one of them where it just felt genuine. He was like, kind of like, yeah, we thought about it, but I, we did our work and no, nah, I don't like, I don't, I don't think it to be honest with you guys. I don't think it. So the other, the other time I felt we got a genuine response from just while kind of that topic was, um, you know, we didn't take a lot of responsibility for a lot of things. He kind of just said everything kind of went to shit and we yeah. got behind the gun and you know, whatever, you know, but it's a small thing. But I, I did like seeing him kind of take responsibility for how bad the punt return position was and kind of, you know, the hand up like I fucked that one up. Like we I thought that Eric Gray could do it. Uh, we 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 let a punt returner we had on the roster go for an extra wide receiver couldn't return. He's like, that's on me. I I should I wanted to draft one. I couldn't get it, and then I just I held out with a guy that I thought could do it, and he could. I think in summation, um, I want to believe in Joe Shane as a GM. I really do. Mm-hmm. I am beginning to really question his process. I really am. Uh, and his thought process. And I, I'm beginning to get the feeling, and I mentioned this to you, that there are people in this world who are reactive and people who are proactive. I'm really beginning to get the sense that Joe Shane is a reactive general manager as opposed to a proactive general manager. And that does concern me. You want your GM to be ahead of the game, to be proactive. And right now, I'm not seeing a lot of evidence that this is a proactive man. I'm seeing a man who, who when given obvious choices, makes reasonably good ones. But when given hard choices often chooses the easiest path because he's reacting to some stimulus 
Um, case in point was a Daniel Jones contract, the way he handled the Saquon Barkley issue. Although we gave him credit for holding his his holding to his guns there, but you know, coupling the Saquon Barkley decision to the Daniel Jones decision was always flawed process, yeah. in my opinion. I was, was going to say that was because I've I've heard it mentioned a few times with the Saquon Barkley being a knock, and I get with like the fact that they resigned him in, instead of, or they tagged him instead of Daniel Jones. I get that part of it. But outside of that, I do think they hand, he handled Saquon Barkley relatively well. And I mean, well, Once good. they got to the point of the tag, he did fine. But yeah. I think it was the whole way they went about getting there that really was troublesome because it absolutely impacted a much larger decision at quarterback. No doubt about it, it affected Agreed. that. Um, I would strongly criticize his approach to the trade deadline. Um, you know, I think Leonard Williams is a good trade. It was pretty clear people wanted Saquon Barkley, and it sounds like the reason they didn't want to trade Saquon Barkley is because they're afraid of the product they were putting on the field. But, yep. you know, like if you're talking about you're in a situation where you're not going to make the playoffs, you're at the time, what were they, two and six at the t- trade deadline, something like that, right? And um, you're in trouble as a team. You need draft assets. You're not, you know you really need to get yourself ready for the next draft and for potentially a quarterback push uh, or at very minimum rebuilding the roster. The fact that they, they chose a short term, let's keep this guy on the field so we can just entertain our fans kind of approach to this was I thought very short sighted. Um, I thought the way he handled the Leonard Williams trade in particular, kind of giving him veto authority, which is what it sounds like he did was not the wisest thing in the world. I'm not sure how he would have handled it. If Leonard Williams said, I veto the trade. But there are things I'm seeing, right? I'm not saying there's this comprehensive, huge body of work that says you should be very, very worried about Joe Shane. But there is definitely some concerning signals I'm getting now. And I'm not so sure he's the person that we thought he was. All that said, if he gets quarterback right in April, I think a lot of stuff gets forgiven because, what to his credit, he has had two pretty decent draft classes. Not great, but good. You know, I think it's fair to say it's been good. Kayvon's a good player. Evan Neal hopefully should be a good player. I don't know what's going to happen to him. Wandell wasn't a great pick, but he looks like he could at least be a good player. Um, Josh Azudu was a bad pick. Cordell Flott was a bad pick, but he might become a good player. We're, we're seeing some signs of it. He was a developmental guy, and they actually have a coach who can develop the guys. So right. Like- it's just the, the question of the pick is where they took him, you know, the value they used on a guy. Um Marcus McKeith, uh, Marcus McKeithen is gone, but but uh, Michael McFadden looks like a good player. So that's a good pick. In the fifth round, you're getting a starting linebacker. That's solid. And obviously, Daniel Bellinger is a good pick. Um, Isn't and it in this funny tra- that all the bad picks are the ones who have to get coached by Bobby Johnson? <laughs> I mean, it's starting to look like that. Uh, Deontay Banks is a great pick. No doubt about it. Did I like the trade up to go one place? Eh, not really, but whatever. You got a good player. At the end of the day, you got a good player. JMS is a good player. You know how I feel. I'm not big on centers in the second round, but at the end of the day, he's a very good player. Um, Hyatt's a very – that's really good value. Did I love trading a fourth-round pick to move up to get him? Not particularly, uh, but at the same time, if he turns into the player we think he could be, you don't care about that fourth-round pick. Um, and then we'll see what the rest of the guys – so, again, not a great two drafts, but good. I think it's fair to say it's probably going to end up two good drafts. Yeah, um, I mean – so. You didn't you get, didn't get like a sleeper all pro or anything like that, but like I mean, Kayvon looked like he's trending that way, but he I mean, he was a fifth pick. So. You're right. To be determined. Um, before we go any further, any other thoughts on this stuff? 
Um, the one thing I just want to mention, I agree with everything you said. The one thing I'll say with the the Leonard Williams things, and you know, we'll never know what would have happened if Leonard Williams did veto it. But I do think that you know, you look like in comparison to a guy like Dave Gettleman, who just built these a terrible culture where all the former players hated him, and there was words across the league that don't go like to Dave Gettleman. He's not going to treat you right. I think it was very much the opposite with Leonard Williams or Leonard Williams is coming out and preaching the good words of how well he was treated. I think that type of thing does go a long way. I do look at it as a positive thing, obviously. And I mean, granted he's like Shane said it himself that this is not like an every player type thing. And I don't know what he would have done if he didn't want to do it. But, um, at the end of the day, it did get done, and it was uh, it did end up being a very positive thing for us. So I will say that. Trade is a trade. We'll take the picks. Yep. All right, man, let's get into this. So we're going to go into our State of the Giants discussion, and the way we're going to break this down is we're going to talk initially about our coaching staff going now and going into the future, and then we're going to go into the players by position group, kind of like how we did our prospect review. So let's get into the coaches, starting with head coach Brian Dable. What is the state of Brian Dable as head coach? Is he our head coach next year? He will be our head coach next year. There's not a single doubt in my mind. Uh, where I'm concerned about Brian Dable is really only on two things. And there's a lot being brought up and criticized for Brian Dable. And, I, and we, me and you have pushed against it. But the two things is one we mentioned with the ability to hold the staff. There's a chance that, and we'll get into it, that, that we could have three new coordinators next year, and that's not a good look for Brian Dable at all. Very bad. Very bad. Um, and especially given the tree he came from and other guys from the New England tree who've had similar issues. Um, and then the other one is how he's how the Giants have handled injuries as him as head coach. I don't know how much that falls on Brian Dable, but it's got to be part of partly on Dable and we've seen it over and over between Andrew, Andrew Thomas playing a full game with a hamstring kept him, kept him out for seven weeks between he's, he's still playing with a strained MCL and limping around the damn field. He's, he's playing with a sprained MCL. We had a kicker who got surgery after playing two, two weeks with a knee that needed surgery. We have Daniel Jones who went back into a game on a torn ACL and then, you know, the whole neck thing and, you know, we felt we might he could get longer and just lots of things, lots of key players. So the between the injuries and um the coach, I think the coach management, I, those are the two things that generally concern me about Brian Dable and concern that he could cost himself a job that way, but it won't be this year. That's how I look at it. No, I I think he would really have to more than Joe Judge this to lose his job. Um now I think you know the injuries issue is bad. Part of that is learning on the job, I think, and learning how to better manage a roster. The coaching thing is a big deal, man. Um, if you're let, let's start with the offensive side of things. Two weeks yep. ago, I think it's been, I think it was about two weeks ago, that Tony Pauline, who has connections to the Giants, reported that he heard from and he cited people close to Mike Kafka, so the Kafka camp, saying that they believe that Mike Kafka would be on the outside looking in by the end of the season and looking for a job. So it sounds like Mike Kafka, if you believe that report, and his people are sending out the signal like, I might get fired. Um, what do we do there? I mean, Mike Kafka, it, it's, it, 
I I know he gets killed by Giants fans, and I realize that with our offensive output this year, it's hard to sit there and defend an offensive coordinator. I totally understand that sentiment. I will say that his job is play design and scheming guys open in the passing game, which if you watch the game film, he's doing on a consistent basis. He cannot get on the field and show the quarterback how to throw the ball. At the end of the day, yep. a, a lot of the, the failures on offense are just bad quarterback play. The worst of which was clearly Daniel Jones, but it's not like we got outstanding play out of Tyrod Taylor and Tommy DeVito. I mean, Tommy DeVito's UDFA doing okay, but he's missing a lot of guys left and right. He's holding on to the ball too long. The, he's still learning the speed of the game. Um, and Tyrod Taylor is Tyrod Taylor. He's a decent player. There's nothing special there. So I I, I don't think this is on Mike Kafka, personally. I, I just don't think he's the reason this offense is struggling, but... Let's say, for argument's sake, these reports are true and Kafka is gone one way or another. Um, number one, do you think he's going to be our OC next year? If I had to ask you to bet right now, and if not, who are your choices to replace him? So, if you asked me a week ago, my bet would have been that he won't be the coordinator next year. But I really think that with this Wink Martindale stuff going on, it you almost have to keep him out of optics at this point. Because if you can't just fire all, I I think it's be a really bad look if he fires all his coordinators, and I think Kafka is deserving of the job. I think he would have been more of a scapegoat at that point. I don't think he need any more scapegoats if with what might be going down this off season. So I don't think it's a high chance, but I would say about sixty forty. I think we keep Kafka. Okay. What about you? I still. I think he's got a clean house of his coordinators. Um, I really do. Luck, uh, I, I, I don't think he's worried about optics at this point. I think he is who he is. Um, we'll see. But I'm going to go with the 40 that he's actually going to be gone at the end of the year, one way or another, or he'll just leave. So um, one way or another, there's a, at least a high enough probability, possibility that we're looking at new coordinators. Let's look at some of the candidates we would turn to if Mike Kafka left. So you compiled a list here. I agree with this list. It's a good list. Um, not necessarily the guys we would choose, but I think the guys who would be looked at for the job. Yep. The top of that list would be Ken Dorsey, the recently fired offensive coordinator from Buffalo, who was quarterback's coach under Brian Dable in Buffalo. Um, what do you think about Ken Dorsey? We know he was Brian Dable's first choice to be OC when he took the job as head coach here. Um, didn't work out with him and McDermott, but... What do you think about Dorsey? How do you feel if he's our OC next year? Look, I don't think anybody that we're going to name here, for the most part, maybe the exceptional one guy that we're going to talk about, was you could really see as an upgrade from Mike Kafka. I think all of them, for the most part, can be a downgrade. I think Ken Dorsey, for the most part, is the smallest downgrade. I think he's a, a solid offensive coordinator. There's not a lot of good offensive minds are just not head coaches in this league just hanging around um i think ken dorsey's a good quarterback developer i think he's proven that on multiple occasions between cam newton and josh allen i think he does a good job developing quarterbacks i if he's gonna fire mike kafka i hope brian dable takes over play calling that's really what i want to see if he's gonna let mike kafka go you gotta take you gotta take it and put it in your own hands at that point if he does that and hires ken dorsey I I'm, I like I think it's a good hire, but at this also at the same time, one of the things I loved about Brian Dable was him going out of his 
the people that he knows and just getting the best coach. And I think you can make an argument. Ken Dorsey is the best coach that potentially be available over there. So I don't think it's a bad thing, but at the same time, um, it feels like a little bit of a cop out, but I, I don't have an issue with it overall. What about you? I think he's the likely candidate if Kafka leaves. I think he's top of the list of interviews. Um, it's it's obviously somebody he wanted to hire two years ago because I think they're obviously going to be aligned philosophically. Um, so I think he's basically the, I think it's his job to lose. If if Mike Kafka's not here, I think this is Ken Dorsey's job to lose essentially because Dor- I think if you're in a situation where Brian Dable's got his back against the wall and now he's got to start producing something, I don't know if he necessarily wants to go and find somebody from outside that he's not familiar with to do this with. I think he's going to want somebody who understands him and understands his offense. He won't have to have much of a learning curve. So I think this is Dorsey's job to lose personally. Um, am I thrilled about it? Not really. Um, but I understand it. I would understand if that's where he went. Um, so I would prefer my Kafka stay over all these guys, except for maybe one guy. Uh, but I think Dorsey would be the most logical candidate. I agree. So, uh, just stylistically, it's worth mentioning that Dorsey is a guy who did help in the development of Josh Allen. Uh, he's a former quarterback. He played at the University of Miami. I do think that there's some value there. Um, he's a good quarterback but coach. He's a good quarterback coach, absolutely. Which takes us to our second candidate, who is the Giants' current quarterback coach, Shea Tierney, um, who's been with Brian Dable since the beginning. He was assistant quarterback coach in Buffalo behind Ken Dorsey and took the job as quarterback coach here when he got to the Giants. Uh, Josh Allen actually does attribute Shea Tierney with a lot of his development as a young player. Uh, I think he speaks volumes about him, and I think Shea Tierney had something to do with Daniel Jones' game improving, as the next guy did on our list. Um, but what's your thoughts about Tierney? I mean, he's a young guy, um, but what if he? I, I'm assuming he would get a shot at this. What do you think about Shea Tierney as a possible candidate? I don't love it. At, but I don't necessarily, I can't necessarily call it a bad move. I just feel like it's it's relatively an unknown. Just he's really never been been in a position like this. Um, you know, he's Dable's guy. He he was with Dable at Alabama. He came with Dable to Buffalo, and now he came with Dable to New York. Um, he got an interview for the Buccaneers offensive coordinator job, I believe, last off season. So you know, he has. You know, brought in some interest as a coordinator. If he really likes Jay Terry, it might be something to keep him around because, you know, that's his guy. It's important. I don't know, man. I, I wouldn't be thrilled about the hire, but I, I'm I'm not gonna shit on it either. He's not like a proven fuck up. He just on on he's just not a proven commodity either. What where are you on that? I would not like this hire. Um, I think you're talking about now training another guy who in the mold of Mike Kafka potentially with less experience than Mike Kafka, less credentials than Mike Kafka. And the yeah. only thing he's got going for him is that he's familiar with the organization and the player and some of the players. He'd have no link to the new quarterback, assuming we got one. Um, it, I think it's a risky hire, personally. It's but. definitely a risk. I'll say the one bright side to it. If, you, if you're a fan of Mike Kafka and what he's done, you know, he brings some of he's learned from Mike Kafka he's learned from Brian Dable both those guys he's now in the tree he he does have system familiarity which I think is his biggest calling card Um, yeah you won't lose everything you got from Mike Kafka type of thing 
And there's something to be said about the value of hiring from within. I think that's a, usually a sign of a healthy organization that you're able to promote from within. But we're not talking about a healthy situation here where you're talking about your offensive coordinator potentially leaving because he got a head coaching job. You're talking about a, a really unhealthy situation where you're reaching now to try to replace somebody you got rid of. So I don't know if Shea, yep. Shea Tierney has the gravitas for that kind of replacement level part. I agree. Um, the next on the list is sort of in the same bucket. Uh, Davis Webb, the current quarterbacks coach for the Denver Broncos, former quarterback of the Giants last year, and our former third-round pick. Or was he? He was a third-round pick, right, back in the 2017 yep. draft. Um, mm-hmm. I think Chris Mara famously said, we got we got the best quarterback in this class, better than <laughs> Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. Anyway, so Davis Webb, uh, it's worth mentioning, Daniel Jones had his best year under Davis Webb. Davis Webb was was uh, part of that team that we, where, all, where Josh Allen was in Buffalo. And Davis Webb goes to Denver, and Russell Wilson looks like an NFL quarterback again. Is that Davis Webb or that luck? I don't know. But uh, he's a guy who's been learning how to be a coach. He's in the middle of his first year coaching as a quarterback's coach. What do you think about Davis Webb getting the leap from quarterback's coach in his first year to an offensive coordinator job? Feels premature, but it would excite me more in the Shea Tienery hire. I mean, like, though from all accounts, he went into that Denver job and, you know, you know, from a player to a QB coach and absolutely blew them away. Um, from a player, the Buffalo Bills wanted to bring him to quarterback. Quarterback coach is a big jump. That is a really good hire. And they there's two teams who wanted slash did hire him as a quarterback coach straight from a player. Um, you know, he has familiarity with Gable. He's learned with Kafka, and now he's with um why am I blanking? Uh Sean Payton. Sh- Sean Payton. And Sean Payton, another great offensive mind. Those three offensive systems that he's learned a lot from. Uh, you know, it interests me. Uh, I don't love the idea, but um, I think it's a high upside uh, higher. I just think it's a little bit premature. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I don't like it. Um, I think it's it's just not the, not the right time. Not the right time. I'd rather bring him into the Giants as uh, some sort of assistant coach if he wants to tra- – I mean, at this point, I don't know what, what that level that would be, like an assistant offensive line coach. I mean, assistant offensive coordinator, something like that, to like learn on the job. Coordinator or something. something like – yeah, if he wanted to work his way up to be an OC somewhere. But I don't think one year of being a quarterback's coach after literally just completing your NFL career should get you a fast-track job to offensive coordinator. There's a lot more to it than that. I hear you. But at the same time, like – he shouldn't have gone straight to a quarterback coach and he's done a great job. So like, I don't want him get handed anything by any means, but if he's fast tracking this fast and he actually goes into an interview and earns it, it'd be like, okay, maybe this guy is just a little bit of a young prodigy here. So, you know, I think there's some exciting parts about it, but I'm not necessarily rooting for it either. You know what I mean? Having him jump a guy like Shea Tierney, for example, uh, you know, to go from, the quarterback who we worked as a who and while he worked under that coach to being parallel as a quarterback coach somewhere else and then jumping him to be his boss as offensive coordinator um, is a little bit of a strange organizational structure issue. And yeah, I don't know if I want that level of dysfunction when you're theoretically bringing in a young quarterback to develop. So there are a lot of reasons I wouldn't want that. I'd rather have a completely different hire if that's the case. That's my that's personal fair. view on it. No, I, I, I don't disagree with you. 
The next guy on the list, I think, is the one that you're talking about, who I feel the same way about. This is the one exciting guy on this list for us. And that's Jeff Stoutland, the current offensive line coach for the Philadelphia Eagles. He's been their O-line coach for several years. He has produced the best offensive line of football consistently year after year after year. This is without first-round picks. This is with guys. Some of them are sixth-round picks. Some of them are seventh-round picks. But the best line in football. Um, and he's a run game guy. And, he, you know, they, as you guys know, they have a dominant run game. What do you think about Jeff Stoutland coming in? And, and we've talked about this scenario, but why don't you dive into how we would envision Jeff Stoutland as offensive coordinator for the Giants? Yeah, so this is the one guy I threw in there who didn't have any connections. This isn't like a speculation type one. This is just one guy that I've brought up. I brought up last year when Mike Kafka was getting head coaching offers, and I brought up a few times. And, you know, if you want to get an elite offensive line coach, it's very difficult. And one way to do it is to give them an offensive coordinator job. And I think – you could do that and steal the, in my opinion, the best coach on the Philadelphia Eagles coaching staff. I think by far their best coach in Jeff Stoutland. You bring him here. I think he, he, like you said, he's, he's the run game coordinator there and has developed one of the best run games in the NFL. I think if you match that up with Brian Dable, who probably would be the play caller and really handle the, the play design with Shea Tinnery with, uh, as far as pass, you know, passing, and let uh, Stoutland really handle the running part of it and be the overall offensive coordinator and let him run the offensive line and help develop this uh, into an elite unit. I think that's an exciting thing to do. He's a very good coach. I think the one negative would be if you're going out to get a quarterback, you're moving away from a quarterback-focused offensive coordinator to an offensive line-focused one. Um, you know, Definitely an argument against that. Uh, I think that I think that getting an elite offensive line coach would be very, 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 very valuable. Uh, where are you on it? I love this one. This is the one I want. Let's be clear. If you're going to shake things up and lose Mike Kafka, you want the way the NFL is going. You you need a great offensive line coach. That's the cheat code you need because it's hard to get offensive line talent. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that, but. I think having a coach is essential. This is a way to steal one of the best coaches in the game. Plain and simple. You steal him from a division rival. You give him a you give him a big upgrade in his role and his salary. You get him up to offensive line coach slash un, uh, slash offensive coordinator slash run game coordinator. Let him develop the trenches and the run game scheme. And you let Brian Dable call the plays and let Brian Dable run the passing game. I think that could be a, a really ex- outstanding, exciting kind of match. Um, no, he is not the guy that's going to develop your next young quarterback, but that's Brian Dable and who his quarterback's coach would be. Uh, he, while the offensive coordinator schemes up plays and helps that quarterback find success. This is the guy I want. This is one way to get him. Um, I do think we need a run game coordinator. Uh, it's not a strength of the Brian Dable offense, to be totally honest. And I would love to see Stoutland. They make, make a play for Stoutland. I don't think they'll do it, but I'd be thrilled if they did. And the only connection I could find with him and Brian Dable is that Stoutland spent two years on Alabama as offensive yep. line coach with Nick Saban in 2011 and 12. They didn't overlap with Brian Dable, but there is that Nick Saban connection. Yeah, that was one thing I was going to mention. They they both coached in Alabama, and also um, 
that one's also from Staten Island, so it would be going home. So, it's a local him. guy. Yep. Yep. All right. So that's the guy we both want, right? That's our vote. Yep. That would right. be your vote if, if not Kafka. Two more guys to quickly go through. Over. Yeah. Pep Hamilton. I'll put these guys together on block. Pep Hamilton and Chad O'Shea. Tell me about these two guys. So these are the two other guys we brought in when we were interviewing offensive coordinators. These were the guys that were competing against uh, Mike Kafka. Uh, Pep Hamilton, we never really got a true shot at. He he got uh, retained by Houston. Uh, he is actually not even coaching right now. He got fired when they brought in D'Amico Ryans, and he is not a coach anywhere. So not a great sign for uh, wanting him as an offensive coordinator. I do think he deserves a quarterback uh, coach job somewhere. I think he's a good quarterback coach, and that's why so many people are so excited about him as an offensive coordinator. But he hasn't done a good job as an offensive coordinator, and he's had a couple shots at it. But he's a really good quarterback coach, so I wouldn't want to go that way. Um, The other one is Chad O'Shea. Chad O'Shea, I have not been a big fan of for a while. Like, I remember he got brought up a lot when we had Joe Judge because he's in New England. And I was always just, why do I want a New England offensive guy? No, 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 no. But at this point, he's been like four years now with Kevin Stefanski as his passing game coordinator. I wouldn't be a huge fan of this, but at this point with how long that he's been with Kevin Stefanski, I feel like, all right, like maybe he's picked something up by now where I can trust that he has a some some sort of offensive mind based off of uh, uh, Kevin Stefanski. What what are your opinions on those two? Yeah, not exciting. The overlap is their time in again New England. He was wide receiver coach uh, for about nine ten years in New England. About three of those years overlap with Dable being tight end coach. Um, and New England under Belichick. So there, there is some familiarity. Obviously, they probably work hand-in-hand as tight end and wide receiver coach. Um, I don't think we need a passing coordinator, and that's where I, I don't care for this guy too much. Uh, and I think ultimately that's his role. Is if he comes in as an offensive coach, he's coming in as an offensive co- coordinator with a passing game slant. So I, I firmly trust Brian Dable for that if we're going to go get somebody else. Yeah, and you're not getting a quarterback coach. You're getting a passing game coordinator, which, you know, great and all. I'm sure you can do do that well. But if you're going to do it, at least get somebody you can help develop your, hopefully, rookie quarterback, which he's not going to do to the level of some other guys. Yeah. I'm sure their names are missing off this list, but I think these guys kind of cover the main uh, likely upfront candidates should we lose Mike Kafka. In order of preference, I'm going to put it like this. Mike Kafka, number one. Please keep Mike Kafka. I would put uh, Jeff Toutley, number two. I think you'd agree with that. Um, yep. I probably am going to put Ken Dorsey number three, just because of familiarity. Yeah, I think that's my clear three. Uh, and then everybody else is sort of mumbo jumbo. Like, but I would probably put. I guess I would put Tierney over Webb, but I know you may feel differently. You, uh, they're probably next to, and then Hamilton I, and O'Shea. I, I'd probably have O'Shea I get above more Hamilton. Excited about Webb, but I don't necessarily think it's a better hire. You know. It's yeah, like, but I, I think those guys are all down here, like. Webb, yeah, Tierney, Hamilton, O'Shea are kind of like the guys you don't really want. You hope you're not going that far down your list. I think this is going to – if you lose Mike Kafka, I think there's a decent chance you're looking at either uh, Ken Dorsey or somebody else from that old Buffalo slash New England tree. But we're gonna, we're making a push for Jeff Dalton. I think we would love yep. to see that. Hopefully he thinks about that. That'd be great. Uh, 
do you want to stay on offense or do you want to go to the uh, next coordinator? Let's go to the next coordinator. All right, let's go to the other side of the ball, the defensive coordinator. Um, we just spent a lot of time talking about Wink Barndell. We don't have to go through that again. It is very clear that you and I are both big Wink Barndell fans. I think we don't need to root for him. He is, his resume speaks for itself. But if all this stuff is true, and it probably is with the Jay Glazer report, and Wink Martindale is not a giant next year, who are our candidates? Um, I'm just going to list all four of the guys you have listed here because I think they're all probably the likely candidates. Uh, um, and we'll go through them one by one. So top of the list, I think everybody kind of would guess number one would probably be Leslie Frazier, the former defensive coordinator in Buffalo when Brian Dable was offensive coordinator, who was let go earlier this year, uh, before this year, by uh, Sean McDermott. And he's currently unemployed, but he is a respected Defensive coordinator, make no mistake about it. He is a respected DC. Respected DC. A um, lot of top units. With a lot of top units. Um, next guy on the list is our own Andre Patterson, who you and I definitely feel is the best coach on the Giants, play, like pound for pound. Yeah, I don't want to lose him at all. So, I mean, yeah. if, that, if that's making him DC to keep him, I, I wouldn't hate it. <laughs> uh, yeah, the man, the man responsible for working on the hand technique of Dexter Lawrence. I mean, yep. comes in helps Dexter Lawrence master his hand technique and look at what Dexter Lawrence has become arguably the most dominant defensive player in football this year. Uh, that's how, that, that's how much of an impact he's had. Um, the next on the list, staying in house, Jerome Henderson, clearly may, I would say our second best coach pound for pound um, yeah. on this team, our defensive backs coach who through two different regimes now has proven he can adapt and coach up his guys to work in two very different systems that re- require very different output from the defensive backs. Guy's a stud. He's going to be a DC one day. I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, and and he's consistently deal. getting, like, we've had n- nothing at cornerback two for years. Isaac Yadam, Fabian Monroe, and go on, and we're just getting solid production out of these guys. You can credit that, too. We'll, we'll talk about a unit where, got, where nobody has shown progression. Can you think of a single player that regressed under Jerome Henderson in the last few years. One player that played below their career median, but no, while maybe, with Jerome Henderson. Maybe below their first year, Jerome Henderson, you could say like a Jabril Peppers, but like he played his best year in his first year with Jerome Henderson. Like Right. Yeah. I, it's hard to come up with a guy. Like we pull, yeah. we're pulling guys. You know, last year we gave the Giants um pro personnel guys a lot of credit for pulling guys off the street. And getting them to be functional players, but they were largely guys in the secondary, if you think about it. And they just gave, if you think about it, they just gave those guys to Jerome Henderson. He said, All right, and I'll turn them into football players. I'll, um, I'll say one one thing. You know, one thing me and you are very worried about is if we let Wink Martindale go, what happens to all this progression that we've had for these? You know, obviously, we've done a really good job on the defensive side. I'll say, the one thing that makes me feel a little bit better is that as long as we have Andre Patterson, Jerome Henderson, I feel confident that a lot of the growth that we've had for a couple of those two units specifically are from a lot because of those guys. Those are very good coaches. You know, I think you, know, you can point to other things like edge and linebacker and things like that, which obviously have progressed very well and is a specialty of Wink Martindale. But, uh, but in those two cases, we have two very, very good coaches. And if we hold on to them, I think we're in decent shape. Well, let's get into some of the, the more unfortunate discussions about that. If you lose Wink Martindale, 
let's just say he's not going to take some of these guys with him. He's had two years to develop a relationship with them. And yeah, I, uh, you, know, you don't know. what I don't know how deep their relationships are, but that's a risk that they, they say, you know what, we don't want to be part of this. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I mean, uh, it's it's possible. But and and the new guy, the new guy might not want them, right? The new guy might say, "I have my own guys, I have my own yeah. team," and that would be a problem. So, uh, I do think you'll lose coaches. I think most uh, specifically, like the Drew Wilkins of the world, the guys who are wink guys through and through, came with him. Yeah, um, I you th- have to I do every, think... if you no. What you're saying, and I agree with you. Is if you lose Wink Mardell, if you know you're going to lose him, what you've got to be doing right now is make sure you lock down Andrew Patterson and Jerome Henderson in some way, shape, or form. You make sure they stay on this team. That yeah. has to be the and priority. And I think Jerome Henderson will be easy. He's been here through a few few coaches, but uh, will it be? I don't know. know. I don't know. I mean, he was here through the next guy we were we we're talking about. Um, the other guy in the, this list I want to mention too is uh, Patrick Graham, who was going to be our defensive coordinator until he backed out of the job to go to the Raiders. Um, the Raiders obviously fired uh, their head coach and he's still over there, but there's a very good chance that Patrick Graham is going to be available this off season. Um, he did a good job and he was hearing his relationship with, yeah. with, uh, with uh, <laughs> Brian Dable. He did, he did a worse job than, than uh, Wink Martindale, but he did one of, he did a, much better job than James Betcher. I guess it's a low bar, but uh, he I think he. Job. I guess I'm not as high on Patrick Graham as a lot of other folks were, um, and I feel like his performance in LA has been, and excuse me, in Las Vegas has been less than impressive. It, it hasn't been good. No. Uh, so I'm, and and remember the way in which he left here it was a very kind of ugly scene. How yeah. he initially accepted the job, and then he said, "Never mind, I'm not taking the job. I'm leaving." And he talked about how insulted he felt and how they were shortchanged by the Maras and they didn't get the time they were promised to develop the roster. I remember it was a very ugly, nasty divorce scene on the way out. Um, a lot of players like Xavier McKinney talked about yeah. him on the way out. And- yeah, it, it, I don't know if that's going to work again. I, I'd rather not go back down the well. Um, I get that. He's a respected mind. His performance in terms of production as de- for defensive units has not been outstanding. He comes from the Vic Fangio tree of, you know, just, you know, the 2D prevent explosive pass plays and give up everything underneath. Just who cares? Let him run play after play after play after play and get yardage. But yeah, but the NFL's adapted, man. And you know what they've said? Sure. I'll run right through the heart of your soft defense and I'll keep going and I'm not even going to put the ball in the air. I'm just going to keep running, running, running right through it. Short, quick, high, high proportion passes. And I'm going to wear you down and, and your team is never going to get on the field and we're going to win games against you scoring points that way. And it's, it's been hard for him to sustain his style. A lot of coaches, including the original Vic Fangio struggling in the modern NFL to keep up yep. with that style of defense. So, you know, the pendulum is always swinging one for one era. It's all, you know, this cover two stuff and the pendulum swinging right back to the more aggressive play style right now. So um, I'm going to take Patrick Graham off the list for a second. Cause I really don't think he's that viable an option. Um, although uh, I think I would, I, I'm willing to bet that he's out of the four guys you mentioned, he's number four on the list for sure. Um, so let's go one, two, three really quickly. Leslie Frazier. Let's talk about him, his style, what he brings to the table. If he is the guy. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a guy who had 
I think like a, the number one defense just a couple of years ago in the NFL. Um, you know, he's a very he's very good at disguising his coverages and and you know tr- tricking the quarterbacks and be it for the defense to be able to jump a ball and make a play. They're very good at getting a, a pass rush with wit when they have the right personnel. For all that, from my understanding, uh, he's a very good coach. He, if, I mean, the Buffalo Bills have a very good defense, but he's a very good coach. Uh, I think you could certainly argue, you know, you're bringing in Wink Martindale and Leslie Frazier on a on a clean slate where, you know, neither of them have already been here and built relationships and defense, defense has already been built for one of them. That Leslie Frazier is the smarter move just because, you know, we've talked about it before where I love Wink Martindale and I love his style. It's definitely a, it's a, it's a unique style with how much he blitzes and it's something that uh, can go very bad very quickly. Um, Leslie Frazier is a little bit more uh, traditional, uh, but without having, while being a really good defensive mind. Again, I wouldn't be happy about letting Wink Martindale go. I think purely even just for, for a lot of reasons for one, like just, that's something Dable needs to learn how to do with is work with people and, you know, and mend these relationships. That's an important thing for him. And then also these players really respect Wink Martindale losing a firing a guy who they respect this much is not going to go over well in the locker room. And lastly, it's uh, just that we've been building a defense. We've been drafting for Wink Martindale and to lose him this quickly wouldn't be a great thing, but Overall, I do think uh, Leslie Frazier is a similar tier defensive coordinator. Where, where do you stand on it? I think his resume is a very good one. Um, I guess one of the – I tend to favor more – and this is style preference, uh, kind of like a 4-3 style defense, you know, where you're dry, with, with four down linemen in general and, and you're allowing your other guys to be more versatile in coverage or blitz. And I think Leslie Frazier does a lot of that where he he'll drop, he'll have his four down linemen and he'll, 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 he'll do a little bit of what Wink Martindale does in terms of the disguised blitzes um, or the disguised pressures. But I think in general, he's a little bit more traditional, like you mentioned, than Wink Martindale. Uh, reading up on Leslie Frazier, like I've been doing for like the last several weeks, ever since we started getting hints of this stuff the stuff that comes around is that he's respected as a teacher. I think players describe him as like a very like thoughtful teacher who explains the why as opposed to just the what, meaning he doesn't just say, this is what you do. This is your assignment. He tries to explain the defensive scheme and um, the rationale behind what they're doing. And I think he wants his under just philosophically. He's a guy that wants his players to understand the big picture on behind every play and every, every uh, assignment. So I like those things about him. I don't know what to make about him as a coordinator when I just think that was a very talented defense in Buffalo, to be totally honest. I think the players are talented. I think you're seeing that even now, right? They're still performing at a high level. And How much Sean of that is for Yeah, I mean, is it is was that Sean McDermott or was that Leslie Frazier? It's hard for me to tell. Um, the other thing I don't like about Leslie Frazier, I'll be very honest, is I'm not a person that, you know, really loves the idea of going back down the Buffalo well over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, and that that's the part that bothers me because I think there's not an unreasonable chance that the Giants lose their current coordinators and hire Ken Dorsey and Leslie Frazier. Uh, and then we're just, we're just the Buffalo Bills reloaded in terms of coaching. 
And that's something I don't know if it's a good thing. I think you want different voices and different thought processes yeah. in the room. Despite how good of coaches they you you may argue they are, which is fair, but yeah, I think I think yeah, I think getting different voices was something we really liked about Brian Dable when he got hired and it's kind of going back on that. Um one thing I'll mention about Leslie Frazier is uh, you know, when he played, he he played underneath Buddy Ryan and the Ryans are kind of where um wink got his start his start so there might be some you know some philosophies that cross over from that so you know i mean it's not like he doesn't blitz he's he's a guy who blitzes you know he just he just has a lot of and and he has a lot of disguised pressure so a lot of that is similar to wink it's just the way he gets there i think from base personnel is a little bit different yeah and he really puts an emphasis on turnovers which is less wink although we have nine turnovers in two games so this is getting a lot of turnovers. I, I think it's worth discussing Wink here again. You know, we're talking about this like a foregone conclusion. I, I I'm praying it's not, but the criticisms of Wink have consistently been he's dogmatic, he doesn't adapt, he says Wink is gonna wink, you know, you hear all these catchphrases. And I remember Ken McCusick from Film Review, Ravens Film Review, giving multiple interviews with Giants content creators like Big Blue Banter and Talking Giants about Wink, but when we when he was hired, and he said over and over again, that's bullshit. Wink adapts. Yeah. Wink will do different things depending on the on the matchup and his personnel. We are seeing that week to week. One week he runs a ton of cover one, cover three, and he blitzes like 55% of the time. Another week he's running cover four, cover six a lot. He's blitzing 10 or 11% of the time. Some weeks he's dropping four down. He's, he's showing four down linemen. Some weeks he's showing mostly two down linemen or three down linemen. He, he mixes it up literally drive to drive, play to play, Week to week, he completely confuses defenses. And if you, I mean, excuse me, offenses. And I think that's something that that has been mentioned about him is that it's he's impossible to game plan for because you don't know what you're getting on offense with Wink Martindale out there. He is a brilliant tactician. And the criticism of him was, well, he individual players don't get sacks in his system. It's all team based, and he doesn't get a lot of turnovers. Well, well, Kayvon Thibodeau in second year has eleven sacks right now, and James we had. Yeah. I'm sorry. With games to go. Yeah, with with five game, we have five games left. Came out to eleven sacks. It's not inconceivable that he hits like fifteen or sixteen sacks in his second year. Yep. That's well within the range of possible outcomes. And we have turnover. I mean, I don't know what the total turnover number is. But we have nine in two games. Yes, they were bad football teams, but nine in two games, including a pick six. His players are producing turnovers. They know where to be. They're ball hawking. They're attacking. So yep. what exactly are we gaining by losing Wink Martindale? Nothing. He's a great coach. You're not you're not gaining anything by losing him. It's it it would be a loss to lose Wink Martindale, even for a good good defensive mind like Leslie Frazier. Um yeah. it's yeah. but I do think he'll be gone if I had it. We didn't we didn't put a percentage on this. What what percentage would you put on uh Wink being gone? Martindale come back or gone, whatever way you want to do it. I'm going to say 90-10. He's gone. That's the number I was thinking. 90-10, I agree. I'll leave a, I'll leave a crack open, but I it, I didn't get anything from those press conferences to assurance that he's going to be here, and I trust Jay Glazer. So. I think that the fact that news broke will potentially change the possibility of him being fired in season or being let go outright, I think what's more likely to happen is sort of a negotiated, I'm leaving, and they pay him out. 
some amount of money and he just freely goes elsewhere. I think that's what's going to happen. Like a mutual parting of ways is how they'll probably term it. But the loser in this are the Giants. Make no mistake about yep. it. The Giants are the losers if Wink Barndale walks away. And the head coach of the Giants should understand that. And he yep. should make it so that it doesn't happen. But here we are having this discussion. Frazier's a good candidate. Um, we talked about Patterson and Henderson. I don't know what they would be like as uh, head coaches. Um, I got to be honest, though. I I think Andre Patterson is one of those guys who I think just really enjoys being a defensive line coach. Um, I really do. I'm, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to uh, presume his ambitions, but he seems to really love what he does. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if he would fully support Jerome Henderson becoming the defensive coordinator while he remains defensive line coach. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So I'm gonna I I'm gonna throw something at you. I've I've brought this up before, and I think would be an interesting move for us if we were gonna go down the r- route of an internal promotion with you know two very good uh, coaches on on this team. Andre Patterson used to be a co-defensive coordinator in yep. Minnesota. That was his title in 20, 2020 and twenty twenty one. I think. Then Andre Patterson, Jerome Henderson, co-defensive coordinator would be a very interesting one to do because you have more of a front seven guy in Andre mm-hmm. Patterson, and then you have you know a secondary coach in Jerome Henderson, and those two working together, I think, would be a good combination. And honestly, I mean, again, it's a loss to lose. Wing Martindale. It's a very big loss, but those two are very good coaches and I, I'd be here for that. And I think there's a lot of respect for this, these defensive coaches on this roster. And I think that would be a way that would go better, would go over better at the locker room than bringing in somebody from the outside. I love that idea. And I think that short of keeping Wing Martindale, which I think is obviously the best solution, Keeping your staff intact, a good staff that has been producing, um, would be very prudent. So I'm talking the whole damn staff. You're going to lose Drew Wilkins almost certainly. But, uh, you know, I'm thinking about Andre Patterson and then Brian Cox, who's the assistant D-line coach with him. I think definitely Jerome Henderson. I think making them co-defensive coordinators, kind of like pass game, run game. It's sort of the the, the same analogous thing on defense. they do John, have those in defense. Right. And John Agarguo, who's our inside linebacker coach since last year. I mean, it's hard to deny the development of our inside linebackers in the last year. Like that's if, if there's one big surprise on this team in terms of player development and production, it's clearly the insider linebacker room. Where Bobby O'Karake was brought in as a free agent, who we all thought was a good player. Nobody really realistically thought this guy was going to be this good. I mean, of course, there were fans who were like, oh, he's amazing. But he had nothing on his resume to suggest he would be this great as a player. He's outstanding right now. And I think even more surprising is Michael McFadden, who went from a guy who looked like he didn't belong in a football field last year to slowly winning the job of inside linebacker two in the in the preseason, missing tackles and looking kind of a mess the first couple of weeks, to now a guy who, if you're watching him on film, his instincts are phenomenal. He's tracking players he's tracking his assignments and he's become a just a really reliable tackler i mean so 
John Agorgu is the inside linebacker coach. You have to give him credit for this. So I would like to keep these guys in place, you know, and I think if it means keeping a D and, you know, sort of like a co-defensive coordinator role with these two, with, you know, I don't know how they would work out the play calling, but bottom line is I'd like to keep the two coaches. Um, and Agorgu. I think those are the three coaches on defense I would make a strong effort to retain in addition to their, their assistance. Yep. And I, w- I agree. I would, I would do some sort of move along those lines. I'd be very happy with promoting from within, you know, again, I think, I, I think it's less, less bleak, even though, you know, lose it's wink has a very tough system to replicate and you're really just going to be changing completely, which sucks. But as far as the coaches that will be going down, it's a little, it's a little bit less bleak. There's a lot of good defensive coaches that are available in this league. We have two of them sitting on our roster. We have another guy in Leslie Frazier who has relations. Um, I th- I think we'll likely be in good hands if we lose Wink, but make no doubt about it, losing Martindale is a huge loss. And I don't know if Andre Patterson called defensive plays when he was co-defensive coordinator in Minnesota. I'm not sure. Pro- if he did probably or Zimmer, I assume. Yeah. So I don't know how much experience he has, but somebody's got to call those plays. So you got to assume it would probably be Patterson if they did something like that as a guy who's at least got some experience there as a coordinator, yeah. but you don't know, but I, it's an interesting thought. I would, to me, that's the next best option other than keeping Wink. It's not hiring another guy from the outside. It's keeping the guys who know our players who have been developing our players, uh, keeping that locker room intact and, and, and just keep going. So that's our, so I'm assuming that's our number. Number one is keep Wink. Number two is, Patterson Henderson in some short form co-defensive coordinators and number three would be Leslie Frazier. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And I think they're all good options. I just think getting rid of Wink is a bad option. <laughs> yeah. I think this one, like I know, but it's like we both said, we think it's like a 10% chance he stays. I think I, I feel like that relationship is probably beyond salvation. Unfortunately, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, hoping, hoping we're wrong, but it's, it's bad. All right. That covers offensive and defensive coordinators. Let's go on to special teams coordinator. This one should not take long at all. Thomas Begay, he is a horrendous coach. I don't know how he has survived all these reg- re- regimes. He's got to. He's, he's he's got to go. You have an interesting name you brought up. You want to you want to go through him real quick as a potential replacement candidate. Yeah, I I didn't really want to br- go through a ton of special team coordinators because you know we'll get who we'll get and it'll be an right. upgrade from Thomas McGahey. But the one name I thought was interesting. Um, Brian Pullian, uh, he was the special teams coordinator for Notre Dame for a long time. Then he went with Brian Kelly to LSU. Um, he is now the athletic director at John Carroll University, which was his alma mater. Um, actually produced a lot of NFL coaches. That's where uh, Josh McDaniels went there, and he played with um, Brian Pullian. Brian Pullian is the son of uh, Hall of Fame coach or GM or whatever it is, Bill, Bill Pullian. Um, and funny story is that Brian Polian, uh, played high school football with, with, uh, Brian Dable. They, he got Brian Dable, his GA position at Michigan state underneath Nick Saban. They're very close. Um, we're in need of a special teams coordinator, but we will see if he is willing to give up an athletic director position at his alma mater. But, uh, that's a name that I've had my eye on ever since we hired Brian Dable and I was trying to make these type of connections. Um, that's one I would look out for. But other than that, 
I don't I don't really have much of a name for you. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, look anybody throw a dart at the yeah. wall, <laughs> I think, uh, but I, I like I, I literally like literally the <clears throat> yeah I I agree and I think Brian Polian's a perfectly good guy. Hey, you know him from high school. They went to high school with Dave Caldwell. Did you know that? Yeah, that was another one. I forgot that. Yeah, so interesting high school. That's St. Francis in Hamburg, New York, because I know Brian Dable grew up right outside. And Caldwell went to John Carroll, too. Yep, he did. (laughs) So um, interesting, right? Uh, These guys are all kind of tied together. Um, So let's go on to our next coaching group, which is, I think, the most important one, the one everybody wants to talk about. Offensive line coach. Um, McGahee, the only reason that our offensive line coach is not considered the worst coach on this team is because of Thomas McGahee, who is who has earned that reputation over years of perseverance and production. Um, but I think it's fair to say that no, no position group coach has done less with more than Bobby Johnson. And um, yeah. as, we, as we alluded to, Joe Shane's comments about Evan Neal in the press conference sort of hint at he expects Evan Neal to be a tackle and it, it does sort of sound like an indictment of the coaching and development. So first question, and this is a tricky one. Bobby Johnson has been with Brian Abel for many years and you're not hearing any stories of his demise. Um, let's assume for a second that Ken Dorsey is our offensive coordinator next year. Just for a second. Yep. Who do you think Bobby Johnson is still our offensive line coach next year under any circumstance? I would be very surprised. Elaborate. I, I don't think you could justify it. I like as much as I think that he likes Bobby Johnson, I'm I think there's probably the players like him, all that type of stuff. At the end of the day, Production matters, and he hasn't been doing his job, and you lose your job for that. And, you know, I we haven't seen him do it yet, so I can't say for certain that he would, but I think any head coach would be able to make this firing. I think it's no-brainer. Um, I don't think he wanted to do it midseason, but I, I do think it happens at the end of the year. I'd be very surprised if he's you and I were advocating from the preseason that we should yeah. consider bringing in a a consultant like Googs to help out because we could see the writing on the wall with the offensive line, the the line shifts, the various formations, you know, the the, the different personnel groupings that we kind of could. It was like a train wreck we could see happening in real time and saying, "Just stop the train," you know, like don't. And they didn't, and here we are. Um, I agree. Bobby Johnson has no business continuing. I don't think that he. You can point to one thing and say he should continue with his job. Every single player he has inherited has either regressed or not developed at all under him. And that's saying a lot because he got a lot of draft capital. No other position group coach got the draft capital investment and financial investment than Bobby Johnson. If you think about this, he got the number seven overall pick in 2022. He got the number 67 overall pick in 2022. He got a fifth round pick in 2022. He got a second round pick, the 57th overall pick in 2023. He got the only free agent signing the Giants made in 2022 in Glowinski with any real money. Um, And that was his guy. And that was his guy that he brought in. So that's five guys right there, right? A free agent, a a mid-round pick and three early round picks 
that he got invested, and every single one of them has looked like dog shit under him. Yep. So none uh, of them have developed. None of them. It's bad. It's really bad. Even John Michael Smith, who's who came in, he was a decent player. He hasn't gotten any better throughout this year. Evan Neal had two years, hasn't gotten any better. You're seeing flashes of Schmitz now. Like of the yeah, guy who was in Minnesota, but, it, it, but but yeah, but it's not consistent. And by now, yeah. like John, the whole calling card of John Michael Schmitz was older prospect, career center, very experienced, plug and play, going to be a top tier center right away in the NFL, or like a top half of the league type of center right away because he's plug and play. He knows his position. He looks like a guy who who's learning on the job for the first time. You know, it, it's concerning. So I agree, he's got to go. A lot of our Faithful listeners have been waiting for this. We're an hour and a half into this episode before we get into it. But yeah. but, but they're going to listen because we know you guys are listening. I know you guys are getting deep into the episodes and we appreciate that. So let's go through our personal choices for who we would target to replace Bobby Johnson, offensive line coach. And you have compiled a nice list of five guys. I love the list. Let's start with our number one guy. Should be no secret to anybody. Probably the best offensive line coach in the game, at least one of the best, other than Jeff Stoutland, who we did not put on this list, right? Because we were considering yep. him an offensive coordinator candidate. I don't think you're he'd leave the Eagles. You're not taking him as an offensive line coach. You're not taking him just as an offensive line coach. You're going to ask him to do it if you brought him in as an OC, but let's remove him from the situation. Number one on the list, Mike Munchak, currently unemployed slash consultant, I believe. Um, former O-line coach of the Broncos and the Steelers. Definitely considered the top guy or one of the top two or three guys in the NFL. Um, tell me about Mike Munchak and why you want him as our online coach. Mike Munchak is one of the greatest coaches in the NFL. I mean, there's a few, few special difference makers on the offensive line of coaching. The only guys who I can really say are Jeff Stoutland, Mike Munchak, and I'd say Bill Callahan as That's far it. as I mean, you could say Dante Skarniecki because he's not currently coaching as far as recent guys, but he's retired. He's done. He's not coming back. Um, Mike Munchak wants to coach again. He just under very certain circumstances, which has been the issue where um, our biggest obstacle, he has turned down coach coaching interviews in the past because he wants to be on the West Coast where his daughters live. He wants to be close to family. Obviously, we're not on the West Coast. So there's no guarantees we can get Mike Munchak. But at the end of the day, he has said that he wants to get back in the coaching. He's made it clear he wants to coach again. And he and money can talk. And I think that that's something that Show me we the should, money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should throw a blank check at Mike Munchak. Because if you look at his resume, you look at what he did with the Tennessee Titans, he, he did such a good job coaching up that offensive line that made him the head coach. Uh, after he got let go from a head coach, he went over to the Pittsburgh Steelers. He put in a brick wall in front of Ben Roethlisberger, and they had one of the best offensive lines that produced one of the best offenses in the NFL for years, uh, allowed Le'Veon Bell to be the patient running back he wanted to be. Um, that offensive line was incredible. He Finally left, he was you know, wanting to go towards the West Coast to be closer to family, he went to the Denver Broncos. His first year, he took Garrett Bowles, who was a 
bust, a total bust as an offensive tackle, first run off tackle. I believe he became an all pro in his first year with Mike Bunchak. He was a bust to that point. And the Denver Broncos suddenly looked like one of the best offensive lines in the NFL. Mike Munchak is one of those special, special offensive line coaches. And he he should be for a league that has no salary cap, every every team should be throwing a, a bag of money at Mon, Mike Munchak to get him. And I think uh the Giants should be the team that does that with how many issues they've had with offensive line for this long. He can change that by just that hiring. What are your Munchak, thoughts, Sal? Munchak is a no-brainer. Um, it's important to note, for those who are not familiar with him, Mike Munchak, the former lineman himself, he was a first-round pick in the 1982 NFL draft. The Oilers took him. He was a two-time All-Pro, nine-time Pro Bowler, 1980s All-Decade team. The guy knows... He knows this position. He knows the he knows the offensive line. He played tackle. Um, he's been an outstanding coach, like you mentioned. He's he's a difference maker. He, this guy bends the needle. I know he wants to stay close to his daughters in the West Coast, but if I'm John Mara and Joe Shane, I'm getting on the phone with him. I'm giving. I'm making him the highest paid position coach in the NFL. I'm not even hesitating. I'm offering him just a blank check and saying. I will fly you back and forth to see your daughters, like literally every week. I don't care. I'll put you in a private jet. You're going to fly them back as much as you want. We'll fly them in. We'll fly you out as often as you want. But you got to commit to coaching our team. And that's it. I would do. I would roll out the red carpet and do everything I could to get Mike Munchak to coach the Giants. And I do think there's, even though we're not a West Coast team, money talks, rolling out the red carpet talks. I do think there's still, despite their dysfunction for the last decade, there's always still an allure. If you talk to NFL players and people in the NFL about the Giants, I think they, it's a, it's a history legacy franchise. I think they find that alluring to be able to try to find success with the Giants. Wink Martindale talked about that, you know, um, mm-hmm. being in the on the big stage. I would test the theory. I would test the theory and do everything I could to ro- get him out. I would make it so hard for him to say no that he would have to say no to the most money he could ever imagine and the best position he could ever imagine. And if he says no, he says no, but I would make it like a damn near impossible deal for him to say no. This should be the priority of the Giants into the offseason in terms of coaching. I wish we weren't talking about having to find new coordinators because it shouldn't be that discussion. It should be this discussion. But But even if you find new coordinators, you have to make this the priority, getting a guy like Mike Munchak in here. So... 100% 100% with you. He should be our top target. Callahan signed a deal, um, a renewal deal for an extension in Cleveland. So he's off the table. So we got to go through the rest of the guys. But do you want to add anything more, Munchak, before we go to number two on the list? Um, I mean, the only thing I'd mention, he is from the East Coast. And, you know, the he's longer Scranton. and longer, he's from Scranton. And the longer and longer he's away from football, I think the more and more he's going to miss it. He's been talking about next year is going to be the year that I come back. For a couple of years now, I think the chance of him taking a job on the East Coast is going to go up and up by the year because I think he wants to get back into it. Joe Shane, make the call. Make it impossible for him to say no. There is no excuse for you not to do everything in your power with every penny you've got to make this man our coach. No excuse. I don't give a damn. He is scheme independent. You know, we talk about like like scheme uh, independent, scheme proof, situation proof for quarterbacks. Mike Munchak is a situation proof coach. You got to get him in here. We've had issues right. for too long, John Mara. Pay you up. need a real solution. You need a real solution here. You need a home run solution. All right, 
let's assume we can't get Mike Munchak. Number two and three on our list are guys that you and I both love, um, but they're they're not names that people have necessarily have talked about outside of our inner circle of friends. Um, number one of, of those two, a guy rising up who I think more people are becoming familiar with now, Sharon Moore, the uh, co-offensive coordinator, current interim head coach of the Michigan Wolverines as Jim Harbaugh serves his suspension. Um, Sharon Moore has been their run game coordinator slash O-line coach slash assistant slash co-offensive coordinator. Um, he has overseen some of the best offensive lines in college football the last few years. And he's produced a couple of really good players. Um, Olu Oluotimi, who was drafted last year, the uh, very well coach Remington and Outland Trophy award winner at center, uh, who went to the Seattle Seahawks and has had uh, his share of snaps. He's not the starter yet in Seattle, but the snaps he had, he was dominant in. Uh, I think they're they're easing him into the position behind Evan Brown, but he looks like he's going to be a long-term starter for them at center. And this year, uh, Zach Zinter, who unfortunately suffered a gruesome injury this past week against uh, against Ohio State, hit a tip-fib fracture, which is a double bone fracture in the leg, which is potentially career-altering. Um, it sucks. Uh, we'll see. I, I wish him a speedy recovery. Hope the kid is all right and can come back and play. But before that, Zinter was viewed as the best interior offensive lineman in this class. Um, at right guard, just an absolute dominant force. That entire Michigan O-line this year is draftable. In fact, I have a feeling that they're all going to get drafted. Maybe not early, maybe they're all day three picks other than Zinter, but I think they're getting drafted. Um, so he runs a great coaching scheme. He develops players. Their run game is as dominant as any run game in college football, and it has been for three years, three, you know, a few seasons ago, it was Hassan Haskins with Blake Corum, the redshirt freshman, backing him up. Then the last couple of years, it's been Blake, the Blake Corum and Donovan Edwards show. But Michigan has been a top-tier team in college football the last few years based off its running game. And that offense is powered directly through the running game that Sharon Moore runs. So I love this guy, but um, he's got all, now he's got experience both as an offensive coordinator and as a head coach. I don't know what's, what his future is with the Michigan program in flux, but... That's I can go on and on about Sharon Moore, but what are your thoughts on him, Monty? I mean, he's one of the best young and upcoming coaches in college football. Um, he's a very, very bright offensive line coach. He he's the best offensive line coach in co- in college football. Um, but I think more and more, especially with the sign stealing stuff and him taking over as the interim head coach, I think he is working towards getting uh head coach at the college football level. I think that a team should hire him as a head coach. Um, I I'm thinking it's trending towards the giants want him. What? (laughs) It might be Michigan. It might be, it might Harbaugh might, might leave. And I think again, it'd be a good hire for Michigan. And, uh, you know, if the giants want Sean Moore, I think you're going to have to consider, I mean, you have to pay him a bag just like you would Munchak. And I think you might have to consider, uh, an offensive coordinator type position to get him here. So yeah, yeah. I don't I know if this is the one, but yeah, I do think you would have to strongly consider um, him being named offensive coordinator slash O line coach slash run game coordinator or co offensive coordinator. You'd have to do something similar, you know, and bring him into an analogous position because I do think there's a decent chance he stays at Michigan to become head coach. If this, we don't know how this Stein sign stealing scandal is going to land in terms of sanctions. Um, it, but if, you know, one of the possibilities is that 
Michigan gets hit with some penalties, but does not lose their eligibility, their bowl eligibility or playoff eligibility. Um, and maybe there's a sort of tacit agreement that, you know, Harbaugh's got to go. And the price they pay is they, they, they tell Harbaugh to walk. And if that's the case, that's sort of opening the door for Sharon Moore to stay there as head coach. Uh, I think that's a very likely prob- you know, possibility. If the program, however, gets sanctioned and they lose bowl eligibility and playoff eligibility, that might change things. You know, I don't know how much he's going to want to stay there at that point if he has other opportunities that we'll see. But, he, you know, all that other stuff aside, I think he's a guy that the Giants, should, at very minimum, they should call for an interview and, and find out, kick the tires and see if this man is willing to take an NFL job as an offensive line coach because he's the, one of the best in the business. Yep, I agree. Um, you know, he's a guy who's who's won the the Joe Moore Award for best offensive line in the uh, the country. He's a very he's a very good coach. Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't know if that one's the one that's going to work out. But he's very deserving, and I would lo- would love that hire. The next guy on our list, uh, a guy you and I have referenced multiple times before. We love this guy, and he loves. He loves liking our comments about him on Twitter, which yeah. I appreciate. When we if you don't even add him, he just looks for his name on Twitter and he finds it, which I appreciate. Uh, but it's the offensive line coach from Northwestern University, Kurt Anderson. Kurt is really another up-and-coming great coach. He has recently coached up the likes of Peter Skaronsky, a first-round pick in the last draft, Rashawn Slater from the 2021 draft, who... It's one of the best left tackles in the NFL. Um, and then prior to that, during his time as coach in Arkansas, he coached Frank Ragnow, who's, you know, probably, he's not the best center in the NFL, but he's a top five center in the NFL. Um, so tell me a little bit more about Kurt Anderson, what you like about him, and what do you, what do you think about the Giants offering him a job? Yeah, man. I mean, the resume that you, that you just said right there speaks for itself. I mean, you have three first-round picks there that he's coached. And not only do you have three first-round picks, this is what I love about him. It's not that you have three first-round picks. You have three of some of the most technically refined offensive linemen we've ever seen. I mean, uh, Frank Ragno was a total stud at center. He was a the total package, one of the highest-drafted centers we've ever seen. Um, you have Rashawn Slater, who was just everything pro-ready, was a guy who who could have got drafted before the COVID season first round and and then didn't play and then did get drafted. Like he is a great, great player. And then you have Skaronsky, who's another one, just right in that mold, who was just so technically refined. And, you know, at a school like Northwestern, he's doing he's working with what he can get at that school. There's that's not getting the the level of talent that they're getting at, you know, the Alabamas, Ohio States, the Michigans, he is, he is taking the players he gets and he is coaching them up into being some of the best offensive line prospects we've seen in recent history. Um, he does have an, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just saying there's an article out on him as well. which really giving him a lot of credit with, uh, he's done, but go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, he has sort of an indirect connection to the Giants that you and I have discussed. Um, while he was at Arkansas, his, you know, coaching up Frank Ragnow, who he gets credit for, he his his head coach was Brett Bielma, 
who was the former Giants outside linebacker coach in 2020, um, and who's now the current head coach at at the University of Illinois, and he's producing some fantastic defensive players, um, most notably Devin Witherspoon, guys like him, Sidney Brown, Kirby Joseph, um, Zerjan Newton, who's coming out in this draft. So, you know, these guys have a good tree of coaching and player development, even though they're on different sides of the ball, but he does have a Giants connection. But uh, I think Anderson's a fantastic candidate. Do you have anything? I'm sorry, you were going to add something else on Anderson here? No, I mean, uh, the only other thing I would say as far as connection, too, is he was uh, an assistant offensive line coach from 2013 to 2015 for the Buffalo Bills. Obviously, that did not cross over with um, Joe Shane and uh, Brian Dable. But, you know, being within the same organization, there's always the chance that that name is gotten around that building and that they've heard good things about him, potentially. Just something worth throwing out there. All right. Um, going down the list, we have another name that we haven't talked about a lot. I know you're very high on this guy. Um, and that's Dan Rouchard, who is currently the uh, – I think he's the, the – he's currently – is he at Tulane right now? I he's Tulane. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So he's coaching at Tulane. He used to be on the Saints, but tell us about Dan Rouchard. So Dan Rouchard was a long time coach for the Saints. Um, he recently uh, was, I think, a mutually parted ways with the Saints. Uh, they brought in uh, Doug Marone is over is over there now, and he's taken over that offensive line position, I believe. He moved back to tight ends coach or something like that when Doug Marone came in. He, uh, but he's been with the Saints for a, a good bit. He was there, uh, started there in 2013 as a running back coach. Then he took over a tight end coach 2015. Then he was the offensive line coach from 2016 to 2020. Uh, the Saints had a really good offensive line for a while. They had the likes of uh, uh, Ryan Ramshack. They had the likes of uh, Taron Armstead. Um, and they had some good guards in there for a little bit. Then, you know, Armstead was a guy who uh, was like, I believe, like a fourth round pick. He was a complete developmental guy. Ramshack is a guy who kind of took off right away and was a really good coach. But what a uh, really good player. But what really put me on to him was there's an article that came out a few years ago, which there's not a lot of people who break down who who's good at offensive line, who's not. But there's not an article by uh, Justice Mosqueda, something like that. Um, but it was from 2018 on Optimum Scouting. And he basically had a formula he did to try to calculate all the offensive line coaches throughout their careers on here and how well they've done. And the number two guy on that list was Dan Rouchard based off his formula only behind Dante Skarnecki. And I'll read you the, like the top five here. It goes Dante Skarnecki, Dan Rouchard, Mike Munchak, Bill Callahan, Frank Pollock. So like, and then Aaron Cromer was another one. And he's, he was a, did a good job for a while as well. Uh, so, you know, those were some of the names that we've been talking about. And the it stacked up with the formula. And you saw right there, Dan Rouchard just sitting in the middle of there. So, I, I that one interests me. He, you know, he's over there in Tulane right now. 
you know, a New Orleans college. But if he wants to get back to the NFL, he does have a track a track record, and that's uh that's a guy I would be interested in giving a shot to. No, he's got a track record, and I would not be opposed to it. Um, he's actively coaching, which is a good thing. So in college, I'm sure he would at least consider a welcome back to the NFL. But it's a it's a guy the Giants should absolutely interview. I think they should make the call. This brings us to the last guy on the list that you brought up, uh, and this is an interesting one because of his connections to the Giants, but it's Paul Alexander. So, Monty, tell us a little bit about Paul. Yep. So, Paul Alexander is an, another one that really interests me. Um, Paul Alexander, actually, I found him because of Andrew Thomas. Andrew mm-hmm. Thomas is somebody who speaks very highly of Paul Alexander. Paul Alexander is somebody who coaches Andrew Thomas. That's one of his um, personal trainers, and he has credited him a lot with what he has gotten to from his rookie year where he found a lot of struggles to where he is today. Um, he is a long-time coach in the NFL. He started coaching in the NFL in 1992. He was with the Bengals as their offensive line coach from 1994 2017 that that is a long time to be with one organization as a coach that was 24 years as the Bengals offensive line coach and during that time he got accredited as the number one graded pass pro offensive line over the 13 years PFF was grading so throughout the 13 years he was the aggregate number one pass protection offensive line so the Data backs up of how good of a coach he was there. And, you know, you think back to the bank, you think of, you know, Andrew Whitworth and guys like that who did a really good job of coaching before, you know, before the Bengals were the shit show they are today on the offensive line. They used to be a right. really good offensive line. You right. had, uh, Kevin Zeitler was there at one point in time. Um, they had, a, sh- they had like, a shitty team and a great offensive line. Now they have a great team and a shitty offensive line. It's amazing. Exactly. Um, they even had, um, one of I'm blanking on the name, but there's that one Alabama right tackle. He's a first round pick, and he's really he he was kind of a bust in some sense. But they really turned him into a good run blocker. Um, I'm trying to think of his name, but he was a really good run blocker for them. Uh, but he was a guy that who couldn't didn't hack it when he left, and was kind of fell into what should have been a bust. It felt like, but they really made him usable. Um, let's see if i find it but uh uh but uh jonah williams is just coming up it was somebody else but uh oh andre smith you get you remember andre smith he was a sixth pick in the draft and Mm -hmm. he was there from 29 to 2015 and he really never caught on after he left there he was serviceable but during that time i remember he was very successful um as a run blocker and if they found ways to conti- continually be a good coach uh, to these guys. So, you know, given his connections to Andrew Thomas, given his success and backed up by PFF grades, uh, I, I think this would be a good good coach. He's also from uh, Rochester, New York, which uh, actually is where uh, Brian Dable went to school. So there's some connections there. Uh, but... You know, he was coaching as recently as 2023. He was uh, coaching in Germany, the a German football team. So 
I don't know. I don't know if he's interested in getting back in, but um, the last he coached the NFL was 2018 for the Dallas Cowboys as their offensive line coach. But he he is somebody who I would definitely be interested in bringing in, given his connection to Andrew Thomas. I think it makes some sense. What what do you think of that one? I think anybody who coach an, coaches Andrew Thomas deserves a shot at the job. Um, and that's, it's that simple um, because he really helped Andrew Thomas. And if you remember the Andrew Thomas story, after the Giants thoroughly tried to screw him up his rookie year, he went back to Alexander, and he and he basically was like, "Help me get fixed." And uh, I think it was Alexander who kind of worked on his footwork and his hand placement, if I recall correctly. If I'm not mistaken, that or I can't remember if it was him or if it was his Georgia coach, but I thought it was Alexander who did a lot of the one-on-one work with him um, that got him corrected before his second season. So just that on, on the basis of that alone, he would, I think I would love to have his input. I don't know if he's willing to take a job, but I would definitely bring him in for an interview if he's interested. Um, give me five guys who can have technique like Andrew Thomas and, and, and I'll take that. Yeah. If, if Andrew Thomas swears by this guy, then, then I'll, I'll give him a shot. Interesting point on this guy. Did you know he was a concert pianist? No, I did not know that. Yeah, so he's uh, reading up on him, and apparently as he got older with his daughter, he took classes and learning how to play piano. And uh, he's now like a performance concert pianist and uh, even conducts orchestras uh, as a hobby and more than a hobby. I think it's like a passion of his. So I don't know if he's given up coaching to pursue this passion. He's, you know, he's in his 60s, but it's an interesting thing. I would call him right now and give him, you know, unlimited tickets to the New York Philharmonic. <laughs> whatever, it, whatever it takes, man, get the get the guy in here. Uh, all right, so that's our list of offensive line coaches. So I know you guys. I, I think we'll do this again, honestly, as the season goes along. As we as we get towards the end of the season, we'll probably dive deeper into some of these guys. But um, it's important to know those are our, our five guys that we're we're looking at as potential replacements for Robbie Johnson. And I think that kind of covers our coaches in terms of the state of the Giants and where we might go after the offseason. Um, we're coming up on two hours. I do want to go through the position groups a little bit. Um, so I think we can run through these because I think a lot of this is just going to go through stuff we've already discussed, you know, the prospects we've talked about position by position. So let's get to it. Are you you down to finish this up? Yeah, unless do you want to save it and do it another part two and really dive into it, or do you want to just power power through it and just kind of touch on it? You know what? Um, let's let's save this one because we're coming up on a couple hours in this episode, and I think we took our time going through these coaches, which I think is an important part of this. Um, a deep dive into the state of the Giants, and you know, I think we do want to be able to discuss with you guys some of the things that matter. Um, a lot of it's going to be about players that we've already discussed from the draft that's upcoming. And I do think it's worth discussing how we can fix position groups, both through the draft and free agency, uh, at, yeah. least, at least an initial view of that. And I think that's worth looking at. So um, we were being a little ambitious thing. We can maybe get through all this in one episode, but the way we do things, we take our time with stuff. So it took a little longer. Always, sorry guys. Um, but why don't we wrap it up there? Let's summarize what we did today. So we went through the, the Giants themes of the week. We don't have to go through that. And the You know, the playoff percentages and all that crap, the wing bar deal thing. But the state of the Giants, from a coaching standpoint, at, as presently constituted, is in flux. I think that's the best way to put it. We didn't expect to be here after last year, but here we are. Brian Dable is expected to be back. But I think there's a decent chance we are down three coordinators. 
and uh, it's not a good place to be. But if we are, we we went through the names that we think we should be looking at. I'm sure there's other guys out there. But at the end of the day, in summary, what Monty and I would like to see is largely our coordinator stay intact. We want we want our primary goal would be as fans to keep Mike Kafka, to definitely keep Wink Martindale, to keep building on what we're building here. Don't throw it away because you had a bad season and a rough season. Keep building on it. Learn from it. Thomas McGahey's got to go. He should have never been here. So we want him gone. I don't really care who replaces him. But if you want to talk about a position coach that really needs to be replaced, it is absolutely Bobby Johnson. And we just spent some time talking about some replacement guys. If you guys have any other input, feel free to share it with us. But I think we're going to, we should start there. And like I said, I think the key from the coordinator discussion is if you're going to lose Wink Barndale, you got to do your damnedest to keep Andre Patterson and Jerome Henderson in the building. And I think the the difference where we're talking about, like, no, you, you got to keep Wink Martindale and Mike Kafka, but you got to get rid of Bobby Johnson, Thomas McGahee. The difference is when we had a good year and we were won a playoff game, we were sitting, me and you at least, I know we're sitting here like Thomas McGahee and Bobby Johnson got to go. Despite us winning a playoff game, these guys haven't been good coaches. I haven't given up off a bad year off the coaches who I thought were good coaches a year ago. But the no. guy, the coaches that I thought were bad coaches a year ago are still bad coaches. I'm like, yeah, well, you, you can use this to get out on those guys. And I don't think that's prejudice. I think we think they're bad coaches because they didn't have the greatest track record before last season. They performed poorly. Their units performed poorly last season. Yep. They had warning signs all over this season, and they've continued to perform poorly. I think there's ample evidence that those guys should be replaced. All right, so that's what we want. Let's call that an episode, man. Uh, before we close it out, uh, very briefly, it is championship week weekend. Oh, yeah, it is. In college football. So this is this is for all the marbles to get in the playoffs for a lot of these guys. So here's the big one. It's not on Saturday, guys. It's Friday. So you're listening to us hopefully on Thursday. On Friday, 8 o'clock at night on ABC. The, this is the big game. Number five, Oregon against number three, Washington. The rematch for the pack, the final Pac-12 championship game ever. The winner of this game, without a doubt, is going to the college football semifinals. The loser is probably not. I think Oregon is actually a nine-point favorite going into this game. It's being played in Las Vegas, even though Washington won the earlier game in Washington. So this is one to watch. I mean, you guys, we've already been through this. The prospects in this game are ridiculous. You got Bo Nix versus Michael Penix Jr. on the quarterback front. You got guys like Bucky Irving and Troy Franklin on the offensive side in Oregon, um, as well as uh, Trey Johnson. We don't talk about him, but the the adopted step the adopted brother of Bo Nix, who's a shifty receiver, somebody worth watching. Um, and then obviously on the defensive side of the ball, they have plenty of studs. For Washington, they've got Michael Penix Jr. Three draftable receivers in Odunes, Polk, and McMillan. Um, they've got Troy Fountain now, the left tackle. Uh, they, they're just loaded on defense as well. Braylon Trice. They've got just a, a really great football team. I think this is a powerhouse matchup. I know the odds are that Oregon is going to win. I am, You know I'm a big fan of Michael Penix. I'm going to predict yeah. Michael Penix pulls this one out again. What are your thoughts? I'm I'm thinking Oregon gets this one. Oregon's Oregon's a good team. I think I think Bo Nix is you know he's competing right now for that uh, Heisman Trophy. I'm I thought that Oregon was gonna pull it out at the end there. I was I was pissed we didn't get overtime because that was a game that deserved overtime last time we saw it around. Um, but I'm expecting a great game. 
uh, regardless. This is going to be a really exciting game. Their first game was, was a, their first game was so much fun to watch. It was one of the best games yeah. of the year. I want to see that again. Me too. And whoever wins, I think, deserves to be in the playoffs. It's as simple as that. You kind of want to see them both make it because they're so damn good, but you're mm-hmm. only one of them is going. Um, the other big games, um, the main one, the main attraction, Saturday night at – well, Saturday afternoon, actually – at 4 p.m. on CBS, it's the SEC title game, number one Georgia versus number eight Alabama. This is interesting. Georgia, the two-time defending champions, undefeated, but they don't—they've been better recently, but they don't look like the powerhouse they've been in years past. Like they don't look—it's kind of weird to say that about an undefeated team, but maybe we're just taking that for granted. But I don't know. I watch them play, and they—they they, they seem to have a few kinks in their armor. Alabama is a one-loss team. Their one loss coming to Texas, who seems to have their number. But they've been coming on late. They pulled out a freakish victory in the Iron Bowl last week with that crazy fourth and whatever it was, fourth and goal from the 35-yard line, Hail Mary in the back of the end zone from from Jade Milrow. Um, Alabama may be the better team. You know, I think you can make a case that they're playing better football than Georgia right now. So if Alabama beats Georgia, does Alabama belong in the in the national semifinals? In my opinion, and probably won't do this, I think Alabama should take Georgia's spot if they beat them. I mean, Alabama's only loss is to Texas, who's the number seven team in the country. Texas is a very good team. That's not, there's no shame in losing Texas. And, you know, Georgia loses to Alabama, and Alabama beat them head to head in the the title in the SEC championship. (laughs) You got to give it to Alabama. And I think with how how tough the competition is right now. You got to give it to, uh, you got to get, you got to keep everyone else in uh, pending like a Florida state loss or something like that. I agree. I think the winner of this game should go in. I have a feeling that if Alabama won this game, the, the AP, the guy, the CFP guys would find a way to squeeze Alabama in as a fourth seed. And, Cause I've seen it happen yeah, so many times with these SEC teams. Um, but they shouldn't be. I agree with you. If they lose the title game, they should be out. Um, but because of that disaster scenario, I'm absolutely rooting for Alabama to win this game. And I never root for Alabama to win anything. Um, I can't stand them. Uh, but I usually root for Georgia in this game. Um, and I, I generally lean towards Georgia. But I kind of want to see the shit show. <laughs> I'll be yeah. so I want to see what How happens. they fucking spin their wheels to make that one work. It's a good, I think it's going to be a good one, though. I think that's a, that's a good game. It's a 4 o'clock game on CBS on Saturday. I agree. It's uh, a very good game. Uh, the next game to watch is the oh, is the uh, twelve o'clock game actually on Saturday, which is the the Big Twelve the 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 Big Twelve title game, um, Oklahoma State, the eighteenth ranked team in the country against Texas. This was supposed to be Oklahoma Texas, like, you know. This was supposed to be like the you know the Red River game all over again, I believe, right? Uh, so Oklahoma still it is what it is. Uh, I think Texas is going to blow the doors off of Oklahoma State. Honestly, I I agree. Yeah. Um, can Texas find their way into the national title game is the question. I don't see a pathway for that. Um, not, not with playing Oklahoma State. It's not a good enough win to get you in. I agree. Not with what's not with the records that are out there right now. The other two big ones, um, final two, number two, Michigan against number 16, Iowa in the Big Ten title game. That's played at Lucas Oil Stadium. Um I I don't know what the odds are. I'm pretty sure Michigan's a heavy, heavy favorite in this game. I would expect Michigan to win this game fairly easily. I'll say, though, 
um, for people who are looking at potential quarterback options after us playing out of the top two picks. Uh, this is a game to watch. J.J. McCarthy versus Iowa. I think Iowa's number four defense in the country. Um, if they, is, they let him go out there and throw the ball, that, that could be a good matchup. J.J. McCarthy versus Cooper DeJean. Cooper DeJean. Cooper Howard well, is he hurt? I didn't. I didn't hear that. I think, he, I think he's out for the season. Oh no, I didn't realize that. Okay. Well, that. Well, check that. I mean, if he's not playing, I mean, I, I would. Michigan. Michigan should torch them. But they're not torching anybody, to be honest, because Sharon Moore is calling an extraordinarily conservative game plan. It's run, 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 run. A couple of passes here and there. Um, out for the season. But, okay, that sucks. Well, Michigan should win that game and get and find their way into the national semifinals after beating Ohio State. And the final game is the ACC title game, which is number 14 Louisville versus Florida State, the number four seed at Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte. This one's a little bit, it's a little lackluster. Florida State's a powerhouse squad. We mentioned their players all year. They lost their quarterback, Jordan Travis, you know, yep. a couple of weeks ago with a horrific leg injury. Um, just horrific leg injury. So I don't know what the status of that Florida State team is. I, I think it, the, the life got sucked out of them when that happened. We'll see what they're made of. I still expect them to win this game. Um, and I think they'll make the semifinals. But they're the team I can see like in the event that Alabama beats Georgia. I can see the voters do, you know, I can see, I could just see them screwing Florida State over and sliding yeah. Georgia in. If Florida, even if like Florida State like make makes this game too close, you'd be like, ah, this isn't the same team. Like not not without Jordan Travis, so they're gonna have to come in here and convincingly win this game. I think to avoid that scenario. Yeah, if they win a close game against Louisville, I mean, if they lose, they're out. But if they win a close game, and Alabama wins a close game against Georgia, yeah. you can a hundred percent see these guys finding an excuse to slide Georgia in as the four seed. But it'd be such bullshit to keep a, a conference championship winner with one loss. Or but by no s- losses. Undefeated. You can't do it. You can't. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the picture will be at least somewhat clear by the end of Sunday, Saturday night. And I think by Sunday we find out, right? So yeah. um, we'll find out what's going to happen. So pick, tune in. These are these are games all worth watching, guys. Um, I think that's basically an episode. I'm going to remind you guys again. Uh, number one, thanks for reviewing and sticking with us with our really long ass episodes. Uh, I keep <laughs> saying that we're going to get better at this and we really just don't give a shit apparently. So, uh, but we'd like to bring you th- thoughtful uh, discussion. So um, appreciate all the love, all the views. Uh, you can again, find us at, at he's a giant pod at Monte Cristo at M O N T E C R I five D O find me at, at Queens underscore guy um, YouTube, Spotify, Apple um, use the timestamps. Please don't be hesitant to use the timestamps to to find our episodes. Uh, Like us, give us feedback. We appreciate all of you guys. Until then, it's a bye week, so we can't lose this week, and we can't win this week. So I'm happy about that part. The only way we can lose this week is if somebody gets on an ATV and breaks something. So (laughs) Xavier McKinney, if you're out there popping wheelies, please stop. Uh, (laughs) You know, uh, we need you. We probably want to sign you again. Uh, Other than that, you have anything else to close it out, Monty? Nope. Enjoy your Giants free weekend, everyone. Have some have a peaceful weekend for once. We'll see you around. Go Giants, guys. We'll see you next week. Go Giants.